0: The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go, engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today. And you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order, get on the path, and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode of the Solid 7 Podcast is brought to you by and Skins. and Skins is Central Florida's premier custom branding company, offering high-quality custom apparel, design, signage, vehicle wraps, and much more. With over 15 years of experience, they have the expertise to take your project from concept to finished product. And their exceptional service and attention to detail mean your project will turn out just like you imagined or better. Visit hittenskins.com today. That's H-I-T-T-N-S-K-I-N-S dot com. And let them get to work on the branding you deserve. The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet. Tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for building better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events, and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. You, uh, you may have heard me tell it on the podcast, but Matt Cannon play, did this for me. Oh, man. How is that guy doing? He's doing good, man. He's he's awesome. And uh, I'd love to get him on the podcast here sometime. And yeah. uh, with, with that, with that soft uh, entry into this week's episode, this is, of course, the Solid 7 Podcast, a better than average podcast, if I do say so myself, each week. I invite a guest to join me here on the podcast, talk about whatever is going on in the world that interests us. And uh, this week is no different as we invite major Bill Staley to the podcast. And that's there's there's nothing that comes after that. Like I've been called major on several occasions, Bill, but it's always followed by something major idiot, major jerk, you know, nothing, never anything positive. Uh but for, for you, it's, it's, it's legit. That is, that is your rank in the United States air force.
1: It is, it is, it's not too different. Sometimes I get an added, <laughs> an, an added name in there depending on, on who's addressing me. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, that
0: is, that is my name. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, Bill and I've known each other for, I don't even know how long, man, since you were in high school or in middle school for sure. At, at least.
1: Yeah. I mean, that would, that would date us, you know, um, Probably right at you know circa ninety nine yeah. two thousand maybe yeah, probably sounds uh, about
0: right somewhere in there, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I was joking with bill that even even then he had that that pilot's jawline that cut pilot's jawline, so it's it's worked out uh worked out well,, <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but we figured right now i mean we've we've talked for a while now, uh you were in town visiting a few months ago, we were talking about the podcast, told you then i'd love to have you on. And what better time than with uh, now? Now I know it's it's the wrong branch, it's the wrong aviators, but uh, with uh, Top Gun blowing up right now, we figure why? Why not?
1: You know, it, it's such a uh, it's such a pivotal film, uh, and it means so much to so many people, right? You know, I mean, this uh, the original right was made the year that I was born, right? And it was I think it was was it released in eighty six? Am I yeah, am I wrong yeah, in saying 86 that eighty
0: six sounds right?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, 86 is a big year for a lot of reasons. You know, you've got Top Gun, you've got Chernobyl, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it was also, you know, in my, when I was an infant, you know, so um, you know, every time I see Top
0: Gun, I'm like, oh, that's as old as me. <laughs> well, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> dude, it's, uh, so I was born in, in 80, toward tail end of 80. So I was, I, I'm assuming it was probably a summer blockbuster without looking it up. So I was probably five when it was released. So I don't know if we owned it on VHS or how I had seen this movie so many times, even as, as a kid. I mean, we must have had a tape. But I mean, my my sister and I, my sister's six and a half older older uh, six and a half years older than me. And uh dude, we I mean we can to this day we can quote that movie word for word, every every little bit. That that and Days of Thunder both. Right? Yeah. Like they were they were just classics.
1: Well, let me make a funny story. Um uh, so my my love of aviation began with Top Gun, um, which really shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, but you have to understand, um, growing up in a conservative Christian household, uh, Top Gun right is, is not like there. There 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 are some discrepancies here. Uh, there there are notable. Uh, which is however which is
0: funny because now now it would pass for like children's Saturday morning daytime programming.
1: Ah uh, yeah so. Well, yeah, um, but my father, right? Um, you know, he was an aviation geek, still is, right? Um, so he recorded it on television, right? Uh, and it was the edited version on television because that's when they actually edited and they actually censored things so that kids right, would right. see certain things, right? So, anyways, um, so I had this VHS tape, right? And and I knew exactly how long. I could hold the fast-forward button and window release between the commercial breaks. Um, but not only that, a lot of the language and, of course, the scene was removed. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, for the, for the television edited but, but version. Did, but
0: did you get to experience, uh, I'll use the movie's terminology here, uh, Maverick and Goose keeping up foreign relations?
1: I, uh, well, I did. However, they, they snipped that, that, that scene out like very, very briefly. So, like, so I never knew for, for, year for years. It wasn't until my, um, and this is, this is a, a true story. Uh, it was probably when I was, I must have been 18 years old. We've been in church for a long time. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I remember at the time I was working at a blockbuster and I, you know, we get free rentals every week. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I was like, you know, I was like, I want to watch a classic Let me get Top Gun. Right. So I come home, pop in Top Gun and DVD player. <laughs> you get to watch a whole I'm new watch- movie. <laughs> yeah. And and all of a sudden, like the the real Top Gun was revealed to me and all of this like added language. And then oh. the, the foreign relations scene, I was like, Oh my gosh, what is this? I can
0: literally hear <laughs> Anthony Edwards as goose in my head, explaining the incident to Charlie. <laughs> You know the bird, yes, goose. I know. <laughs> uh it's so it's so classic, you know. And so, um, but
1: yeah, I, you know. But the thing is, man, is, is that movie meant so much to so many people. Yeah, um, you know. And, and we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit later as we talk about it. But man, like um, being in the flight school, right, with the Air Force, and then um, and then teaching in the flight school, uh, it was rare that there was not. Um, at least one week would go by without someone making a casual, um, direct or indirect reference to that movie. Um, yeah. it, it's just, it's just at least for the military, for the military aviator, um,
0: that movie is just so important. Yeah. Now, was, uh, was Air Force always the plan for you? Like, I don't remember that from when you were younger. Like, was that kind you know, of always what you wanted to do? No, it
1: wasn't. Uh, for a long time, I, I, I was, um, really back and forth of what I wanted to do. Right. So, um, for a long time, uh, I was thinking ministry, you know, growing up in the church. Um, and then especially with all the activities we were doing in the church, um, you know, and then I graduated high school, went to college, uh, started thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life, you know, and, <clears throat> you know, kind of push came to shove and started talking to my dad, you know, like his love of aviation. And then, um, you know, this, this, uh, silent hero in my life kind of approached me. It's my, he's, he's passed away now, uh, but he's my mother's uncle. Okay. So, uh, my mom's uncle, who is this five foot two, you know, uh, just giant of a man,
2: yeah.
1: metaphorically speaking. Um, and I never knew how influential he was until, um, we started talking and I had kind of casually meant it, mentioned, you know, the military. Um and so the military, uh I need to back up a second. So really um uh nine eleven, right, was a, a pivotal moment for a lot of people. Right. right. And for a sophomore in high school, which is how old I was and where I was, when nine eleven happened, um there was um uh there was a bit of a turning point in, in my potential direction of what I wanted to do, you know uh, seeing what happened in 9-11 and the aftermath. And, 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 you know, I remember walking down the hallways, you know, and I had buddies and we were in 10th grade and they're like, dude, like I want to quit high school now. I want to go enlist. And so, um, military service became more appealing to me, um, you know, in the wake of that event yeah. as it did for, as it did for a lot of young men. So, um, and uh, so I kind of just kind of casually pursued it. Um, and as I got to college, I started thinking to myself, I was like, well, you know, I was like, I want to do something after college, but on the same token, uh, I am a poor college kid and I need to pay for college. And so I was like, what ways that I can, what are, what are some ways that I can find um, some uh, some financers, if you will, for, for college, right? Whether it be grants or scholarships or whatever. And so, um, so the military was, you know, among the options available and so for me i was uh at the time i was in my spring semester of my freshman year so this was um this was spring of 2009 is when this was um when i had kind of fully committed i was like you know what i'm gonna do the military i was like i don't know how long i'm gonna do it but i'm gonna do it um and so for my for my dad for my family it was always it was always air force yeah always um and i will never forget the day when when i when i said army um <laughs> and it was like the look of death came over my parents um and they were like "They're i like, no, you're too smart for that you know and i was like i was like well you know and so we we had a, a, a good conversation um and my uncle Armin, right who is this individual i'm talking about in, in virginia they're like hey they're like you need to talk with Armin." and so i started chatting with him well it turns out this guy is um he has a phd uh, he served forty years in the Air Force. He was in the Army Air Corps and then transitioned into the Air Force. Um, he was a um, he was an aviator during the war, um, dropping bombs over Germany. Um, and he received a commission. And then he was in the Reserve Corps. Um, he's a bit of an academic, so he continued to serve. He actually served exactly where I'm serving right now, here at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the uh, the Academic Institute for the for the Air Force. And so he served on the board here for the Commandant, who's a three-star general. So he was obviously he was in in the circle, if you will. Right. And uh, anyway, so he was a so he was a professor at the College of William and Mary in
0: Virginia. Oh, cool.
1: And uh, and uh, not Virginia, it was in Maryland. I gotta look and see what yeah, school it's is. Maryland. Anyways, might be a Google search worthy. But uh, the bottom line is that this dude knows some senators. And so he was like, "Hey, he's like." if you're interested in the service, he's like, let me call my, my Senator friends. So we'll get you a nomination to go to the Academy. And I was like, well, that sounds like a sweet deal. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, so, um, a couple phone calls later and some days and weeks go by and, uh, long story short, um, I'm in i I'm in a Senator's office and in, in Orlando, you know, and we're chatting. He's like, Hey, yeah. He's like, well, I'm really interested. He's like, however, uh, you just missed the, the, the deadline for submission for this upcoming academic year. He's like, so he's like, he's like, I'd love to have you come back. I want to nominate you, but it's going to have to be another, another academic year. And so I was in this kind of conundrum. I was like, well, I was like, I've already, I've already completed one year of college. I was like, I really don't want to sit around and just twiddle my thumbs for a year. You know, I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, know, I'm like, I'm already on this train. The train's moving. You know, I don't want to get off and have to get back on. Um, so, uh, took his name, took his number. Uh, it's, I've, I've I've long since trashed it. Now it doesn't matter now, but I, we promptly drove over to UCF uh, University of Central Florida and um, parked my car right out in front of the ROTC building and was like hey I'm interested um, what do I do yeah and so through a series of events um, I got accepted into the Air Force ROTC program at UCF um, and I entered a what they called a um, they called it it was an accelerated program because I had missed out on my freshman year So basically, I was starting my sophomore year, and I was having to to basically uh, dual enroll my classes, at least my military classes, that is, for my freshman and sophomore year, so that I would go to boot camp uh, that upcoming summer, and then I would resume a normal pace for my junior senior year. And then, you know, with yeah. the intent of receiving a commission at graduation.
0: Now I had in, in high school, uh, I was, a, I was a swimmer and, uh, I, I, just kind of fell in with this, a, a group of older, older guys that were on the swim team, which is kind of who I ended up hanging out with the first couple of years. Right. It just so happened. Three of those guys went, went military after graduation, they all graduated a year ahead of me, two years ahead of me, something like that. I think they graduated my sophomore year. So had one go Army, one went into the Marines, one went into the Air Force, and they they all ended up home to visit again at the same time, all enlisted, all home at the same time after basic, comparing stories. And yeah. uh, we'll say that the Air Force experience at boot camp was a little different from what the other boys experienced <laughs> at boot. Um, it was my buddy, Matt. We'll, we'll leave Matt's name at that. And uh, he's just like yeah, we, we learned how to fold like really well, like clothes, sheets. I can fold anything you need folded. He's like, and we, and uh, we ate steak, steak once a week. was, is this, is this striking a chord with your uh, Air Force boot camp experience?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, you have to understand. So now forgive me. Um, I don't need to know uh, the identity of your, of your friend, but did he, he went to the Academy. Is that correct?
0: No, no, no. Or I mean, he, he was, no, he was okay. just enlisted Air Force.
1: Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, ironically, and this is kind of odd, um, all of the uh, quote-unquote boot camps are a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, it, it, particularly within the Air Force, right? So you have you have you have you have, you have enlisted boot camp, which happens out uh, out in out in Texas, right? And then you have um, and then you have officer boot camp, which then you know if you go to the academy, like the academy has their own boot camp. And if you do ROTC, like what I did, ROTC has its own boot camp, and so, uh, and and they're called field training. At least in ROTC, it's called FT, and so uh, and then they're all just a little bit different, right? But uh, the bottom line is that doesn't—that's not too far, and that's that's not that's not really <laughs> inaccurate uh, to say that, uh, right? Um, yeah, the Air Force, man, you just gotta understand uh, the the mission, yeah. right? And so. Um, you know the, the mission of the Air Force, right? Um, is is just different than than a soldier or a sailor. Um, it's just different, yeah. and so because of that, you know we catch a lot of uh, a lot of crap. You know, uh, if I can say that word, um, we can edit it out if not. Uh, anyways, cra- but, crap is yeah. crap
0: is solid seven approved. We can say crap here. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, because the mission,
1: doesn't require um, every. Airman to be a rifleman, right? Um, the training is, is is tailored to that, right? And, and because of that, um, you know, we catch grief and, and rightfully so, yeah. Because you, know? uh, you know, it's um, you know, we we don't do some of the hardcore PPP or physical training that is um, that you know a Marine would do uh, or a sailor would do or a soldier would do. I mean, but, um, the,
0: the reality is that the the moniker the moniker Chair Force might not be entirely deserved. But it's not, it's also not entirely unearned.
1: No. And and so my only response to that is that it's not untrue. Um, (laughs) You know, it's not untrue. Um, There are certainly, um, there are um, jobs within the Air Force. I I will say that. I'm not going to name a particular job. Uh, But there are people who work in these jobs um, that I have interacted with actually uh, recently and I just look across the desk, and I'm like, hey, man, yeah, I'm not going to war with you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, now the flip side, I don't know if you've, because uh, you are a, are, are a legit listener, but have you listened to uh, the episode we did with Dan Skidmore?
1: No, I, I have
0: not. So I'll, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll uh, uh, shoot you the episode number, but Dan came on, and uh, Dan is an Air Force combat veteran, and he, he was a combat controller. He, he was a tier one combat controller. So it's, it's not like the air force doesn't have any chops and, uh, you guys, you guys fly some cool stuff. You fly some cool things.
1: Yeah. You know, um, you, you, you bring up an interesting topic. Um, the combat controllers, the pararescue members, um, you know, those individuals are just on par with the best of the best yeah. for the other services. Um, it's often been said that, uh, the air force PJ school. So the pararescue jumper school, um, is it's been said that it's harder than some of the other training courses, uh, that are offered by other elite units within the services. Um, because you got to think about it, think about a pararescue member who, you know, he's got to go through the equivalent of a green beret or a seal training, right. But the dude's a medic. Right. Like he's got to go through it from the, from the medic perspective. Right. And so he's got to learn how to do all the things that they do, but yet he's got to do all the medical stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and they call them, you know, uh, they call them mud doctors out in the field. You know, they just, you know, they just grab a handful of mud and they start just patching people up, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, there, there are some, uh, very elite members, you know, who do that kind of stuff. Um but the, the bell curve, if you will the the center mass of the air force right goes through a um a, a comparatively um easier boot camp experience yeah. than than the other services
0: so that's you do that after you know that r o t c path you're doing that between your your sophomore and junior years uh so you finish out those last two years of college like at what point? do you kind of know what your like, is MOS the correct term at that point for you? Or, or at what point do you kind of know what your path in the air force is going to be?
1: Yeah. So MOS is a, is an army term. Yeah. Uh, so in the air force, we call it an AFSC. So It's an air force specialty career, AFSC. Um, same thing, right. Uh, they they mean the same thing. Right. It's just, we have, we have to be different somehow. Of right. Course. So they just call yeah. them different. <laughs> they just call them different names. Um, so in your, uh, so for a college, a cadet in ROTC you submit your what we call a dream sheet um in your junior year and so you you submit it in the fall of your junior year if you're pursuing what we call a a rated position a, a rated position would be pilot navigator weapons uh an electronic warfare officer um a missileer right because that that holds a particular rating um you know, those, you have to submit a, se- a separate package for that too, right? So you submit a rated package and then you submit a non-rated package. And so, um, you know, so I wanted to be, list listed pilot first and then I had to submit some other stuff for like, you know, aircraft maintainer, uh, contracting officer, acquisitions officer. So what, you know? uh,
0: what percentage of cadets put pilot number one?
1: I mean, uh, just about everybody, yeah. you know, well, I, so I would that's actually that's a false statement that's misleading I'm sorry um I would say that a healthy majority yeah. do um but there are um some unique individuals who come forth and and you know I knew a guy who went through and and his passion was to be a public affairs officer you know I mean the dude wanted the you know he was he was passionate about being PA, All right,
0: you, you know, you do you, and I was
1: like, I was like, all right, man, you know, yeah. um, and we could talk about you know, why that's important later, you know, for, for just from a, from an infinite informational warfare perspective, yeah. right. You know, on, on what strategic messaging does, you know, in terms of shaping the battlefield. Um, it's really important. Uh, and we, we laugh at him. We laughed at him <laughs> in college because we were like, <laughs> you're like, dude, you want to be a PA officer? Yeah. Um, he could take but, his, uh, but
0: he could take his leaflets and fashion them into paper airplanes. It's still Air Force. It's yeah, still... it is.
1: It is. Um, but uh, anyways, so I would say a healthy percentage. So you know, if I could put a number to it, I'd probably say somewhere in the eighty percentile range. Yeah. Um, you know, and then everybody else, you know, and then but what's interesting is that you know everyone submits for, but then you know for a myriad of reasons, right? People don't make the cut. Yeah. Um, you know, so I- I'll spare you the. The requirements, right? But I, I found
2: out that I got
0: picked up. I got a pilot slot. So well, right, I want to, so. like, I, I want as we go through this, uh, I, I want to because uh, it's a, a very. I, I, my assumption here is that it's a very narrow needle that you've threaded to do what you do for a living. So, but so I, I'm real intrigued by that narrowing process, right? So out of out of this eighty uh, percent, and it's not just ROTC cadets. Everybody coming to the Air Force that's got a bachelor's degree <laughs> under their belt, a large. Per- a large percentage want to be pilots. Like that's, that's the point, right? Like that's, so what percentage that won it even get the opportunity? Uh, Obviously Um, you might be ballparking here and that's fair.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is going to be a ballpark. Um, I would say of the folks who want it and who end up getting it, I would say quite honestly, it's, it's probably around a half.
0: Okay. Not bad, Um, but that's, that's the opportunity to try. That's not a, I get to be a pilot. That's the, get the opportunity oh, yeah. to try. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, That's just like the, Hey, like we think you're, you know, good enough to yeah. give you the opportunity to try. Um, and so in, in that, in the, the elimination process starts early. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I found out I got picked up for a pilot slot, um, my spring semester, of my junior year, which, you know that was all exciting, yeah. right? But then you know you're immediately met with, "Hey, um, here are here's your plane ticket, here's your orders. You're going to Brooks Air Force Base, which is in San Antonio. It's the medical center, and that's where you're going to go get medically screened to find out if you can legitimately be a pilot. And so, and you have to understand, right? So this is not like you are being evaluated by 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 uniformed medical personnel." Right. And their standards are different than civilian medical
0: personnel. Yeah. We, right? we actually, For, I'll, I'll give you the name uh, off air because he's a, a weenie and won't let me, he won't come on the pod. He won't let me talk about it because no. the money he makes from his medical degree is more important than ticking people off by being on my podcast. Um, yeah. But uh, a friend of ours who you know actually uh, has been certified. He's uh, he's a reservist and he's he's certified as a flight surgeon now.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, is he a member of the United States Navy? No. No, no. I'll 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 fill you in. I'll yeah. Fill you in okay. All, all, all okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll chat later. Um. So anyway, so I make my way over to Brooks, right? And, and here's the deal, right? You know, like I'm saying to myself, I'm like, you know, like I can I can, I not make the cut for a lot of reasons, right? You know, like I could I could just not have the aptitude or the attitude, you know, or heck, I might just not have the hand skills, right? You know, like I mean, just you got to have you got to have hand skills, right? Um. I was like, but man, if I get, if I get DQ'd because it's something I can't control, like medical, you know, I was like, that would just be soul crushing. Yeah. You know, like you, you, like you get out there and they're like, Hey, you're, you know, you've got, you know, this going on that, you know? And so, um, you know, side story, you know, um, long story short, obviously I made it through, um, and not without my hurdles, obviously. So I went to, um, <clears throat> so obviously vision, right. Is a huge deal, right. Like flying air, flying airplanes so my vision was great i had like i had like 2010 vision um i had 2010 on my right eye and i had 2015 on my left eye so um both great right um but i go to the depth perception test right and i make it about halfway through and then i fail and and so the air force right so they have like this one test and it's like the gold standard test right so this is like the gold standard test right you pass this test like they don't they don't care at all right yeah you fail this. You fail this test, and then now all of a sudden, it's like it's like a carpenter who is going over you know a finished piece of wood with a piece of sandpaper. Once he finds that one piece, he's just going to keep, you know, yeah. he's just going to keep, you know, like oh, where else, where else do I need to sand, right? And so by failing this test, I opened Pandora's box, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm stuck in this room. Like everyone like was already gone for the day, and I'm going through tests and tests and tests, and I'm like doing like I I must have done probably. Half a dozen to a dozen different various forms of a depth perception test, right? And I aced all of them, yeah. But I but I failed the gold standard, and so, um, and I just remember leaving, and uh, and they they kind of gave me like the they kind of gave me the eye, you know, when I left. They're like, you passed, but you know, we're not sure.
0: Yeah, and I was like, yeah. don't tell yeah. me that. Watch, watch your p's and q's.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. So. Um, so anyway, so I leave Brooks, right. And it was even more demoralizing was because, you know, all of my buddies who I went with, I went with about half a dozen guys, um, uh, everybody made it through. Right. And I was the one, right. Who everybody was leaving on Sunday morning and I had to get a Sunday afternoon flight because I had to go back Sunday morning for some more tests. And so I'm the one dude who's like having to like call a cab to like go to base and do things, yeah. you know? And so I feel like a failure and uh and i'm like man it's like completely out of my control like it's not like i'm it's not like i answered the wrong question on the test right like this is just something that like i'm biologically born with right and so <clears throat> anyways i uh i get home and about three days later um leadership from the rotc calls me up like hey come on in so i come in they're like hey um they're like, hey, listen, we just want to let you know, like everything, everything went fine. They're like, they they're generating a waiver for you, right? So you're basically going to have this depth perception waiver that has to be renewed every three years, um, you know. So just make sure that you know that you stay on top of that because if this waiver expires, then you know it just opens a whole litany of democ- uh, not, uh, just a bureaucratic paperwork that like you've just got to like stay on top of, right? And so, anyways, um, that was my big hurdle you know, and so like I got through the depth perception and everything else seemed to be okay. And
0: long story short, I graduated and then off of flight school, I went. So, so you, what's, once you're there, what's that process look like? I mean, like, I I, I assume a lot of people are are showing up. They've never flown anything other than maybe a joystick in a, which isn't far off from some of our Mm. planes now, but you know, haven't flown anything outside of video games. So, from from the time you walk through the door, how how long is it before you're you're sitting at the controls of a plane in the air?
1: Yeah, so um, it varies. Um, it, it seems to get longer and longer. Uh, they're trying to they're trying to manage personnel properly so that people aren't waiting for a long time. Um, when I showed up to flight school in uh, Northeast Mississippi and Columbus, Mississippi. Um, I arrived in November of 2008 and I started flight school in May of 2009. So I had about a six ish month waiting period, which, you know, in, in comparatively speaking, uh, is actually pretty quick. Uh, we've had most, we've had some folks who show up in there and they're sitting for 15 months. You know, uh, we had one guy sit for almost 18 months. Gosh. Um, and so, and, and that is, that's a, that's a, personnel manning issue right that they've just got to better manage you know like they gotta they gotta meter the inflow and the outflow valve of of people you know like they can't just shove people into the pipeline and then just creates a backlog right so you gotta you gotta they're they're still trying to find that optimal number you know so that they can have people show up enter the program you know intentionally you know or or with the intent of uh, completing the program successfully right and then outflowing to follow-on programs um you know but you know they're just it's big government it's you know it's a service yeah you know there's there's a lot of you know kind of tlaring it tlaring is a pilot acronym for kind of like this looks about right you know (laughs) Um, you know kind of just doing the yeah yeah i think that looks about right you know and so anyways um yeah so six months which you know was bizarre because i show up in november of 2008 right and uh and I'm, I'm out of my element, man. Like, you know, you and I, we grew up in Orlando, Florida, right. Where we are in a, in a, in a mega city, right. Tons of things going on, tons of people, right. Uh, tons of ethnicity, tons of culture, right. Um, and I find myself in Northeast Mississippi and I am <laughs>
0: not, a, not a lot of nightlife in Northeast Mississippi. I am, huh? I am
1: out of my element, right. Like, I mean the, the town, just turns off like it just shuts down at like eight thirty p.m you know eight thirty nine p.m like right. it just turns it just it just it like the lights go out yeah. you know um uh and it's just so weird you know and like and and you have to understand too this is like a small town with a bunch of you know 95 m- percent or so you know young single males you know uh <laughs> we're just like looking for looking for something to do and a lot of people find themselves in trouble and i won't get that kind of I won't, I won't i won't i won't open that can of worms but there's a lot of folks who do get in trouble um because of just you know um not having enough to do and uh so anyway so you, you start making friends you know and so you start making friends and what uh what's what I find, um, we'll get to this um, when we talk about Top Gun and what I like and don't like about how they portray pilots in the movie. Um, but um, you know, you, you do find uh, an occasional alpha male, right. Uh, who, who wants to be the alpha, you know? Um, but what's, what, what the movie, the first movie and the second movie, what I, I think they, they failed to do is they failed to, to really show that um, by and large, um, any rated officer, in the service, be it the air force, Navy, Marines, you name it. Um, do they're humble, they're approachable or credible, right? They're good people. Yeah. Right. And the, and the reason why that is, is because, uh, we weed out all those folks who are the alphas. Um, and, uh, because it turns out that the folks who are the alphas, right, are the folks who actually don't cut it, yeah. which is kind of funny. Um, you know, we had a guy, Oh man, I'll never forget it. Uh, I don't even remember his name i don't want to remember his name uh he uh he was um he was a lieutenant just like me so second lieutenant show up and um you know he's no different than me he's a casual officer you know like but they had him like working like some like desk job while he was waiting for flight school my buddy justin and i we show up and this guy is just a royal jerk
2: yeah
1: like he's just a royal jerk to us and i'm like hey man dude hey listen you and me we're the same i was like i was like like, we're the same yeah i was like i was like if anything i'm like and you know and he um and and there is so i'm talking air force speak now but like but there's a bit of a there's a bit of a rivalry between the academy graduates and the rotc graduates um for good bad and different reasons um you know the academy folks you know they kind of look at the rotc folks as kind of um uh, in some ways second-class citizens, you know, like hey, like you didn't make the cut, you know, you didn't come to the school, yeah. you know, um but then the ROTC folks can easily look at them and go, "Well, we actually had a real college experience."
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, well, it's, it's um, kind of like the joke, you know, too. Like, what do they what do they call somebody who gets all C's in med school? Doctor, a doctor. Sounds like you yeah. know what they call a second lieutenant that went through ROTC, sir. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true, and um, and the thing is though. Um, you know,
1: so there's what's what's interesting is that there's a, a lot of social maturing um, that happens when you're an ROTC cadet uh, because you're having to you're having to be a, a a real adult. You know, I mean, you're having to figure out like how am I going to pay for school? Do I need to have a side job? You know, like I got to balance school, ROTC, family life, church. I got to balance all these things. Yeah. You know, and uh, whereas at the academy, they they're just in this bubble, right? And they're just they live within this bubble, and and, and they're just they're They're spoon fed everything, you know, Uh, and then I'm, and I'm stereotyping and I'm journalizing. So for those who are Academy graduates, forgive me. Right. But, um, but you know, when they leave that bubble, right. Um, and they come to the real world, right. There's, there is a, a, (laughs) there is a noticeable cultural inadequacy where, you know, you get, you get these guys who get out and it was just so
0: funny. Like all they wanted to do was party. Yeah. Because they couldn't well, party they, at the academy. They're the military's homeschooled kids. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I mean, precisely yeah. right. So, so, so all they wanted to do, they were like, they like, oh, okay, we're gonna have a big party, and I'm like, ah, uh, hey man, I'm gonna call it night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired, and I don't want to stay up late. Yeah, and I got an early, and I got an early morning, and, and listen, uh, you know, not to, not to one up you, but hey man, I, I did a little bit of that in college, and I'm good. Yeah, like. Not, not for me <laughs> you know and uh anyways so um i deviated a little bit there so what are we talking about we're talking about so what does that look like right so like when you get to flight school what's the waiting period is, is that the question yeah like how,
0: right like now? how long yeah. before for are in in the air behind the controls so you know so, yeah
1: so okay so um so let's say um we'll, we'll just use my timeline for example right so i started <clears throat> in order to begin flight school um in what we call SUPT right so SUPT stands for specialized undergraduate pilot training and so um, I won't go into the history of why it's called SUPT versus UPT but SUPT is the main pipeline right in order to enter into that pipeline uh, you have to have an entry ticket and the entry ticket is either uh, your own uh, PPL which is a private pilot's license um, or if you don't have a PPL you have to go to the school the air force host in pueblo colorado and it's called uh it's called ifs initial flight screening where essentially you get your equivalent of a ppl and it's condensed down into a, a six-week program i think it's eight weeks now but it was six weeks when i went through so it is this just this this hyper compressed program within yeah. six weeks and, and, it, and it is intended to generate the same stress and fatigue and uh, frustration that you'll experience in pilot training, you know, as kind of a um, as kind of a warm up lap right. to see if you can cut it, right? So I had to go to Pueblo because I did not have a PPL. and so I had to get my entry ticket. So I had to go to go out to Pueblo, and I went through and uh, and made it through that course with flying. So are you actually is far.
0: is that all like is that all theory or you're flying while you're there?
1: Oh no, you're flying, you're flying, uh, you're flying. It's a little. Um, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's a little general aircraft airplane. Um, you know, and, uh, it's a super, uh, super katana, I think is what it's called. <laughs> Basically it's a, it's a, it's an airframe with a lawnmower on the front of it. You know, it's like, this <laughs> just like this little airplane, right? I just, I just um, love this
0: image of all these guys who have been like, I've watched Top Gun. I'm about to live my dream. Hey, here's the keys to the Cessna. Go warm it up while I get my coffee. I'll be out there in a minute.
1: <laughs> oh, dude. And, yeah, I know. I know. It's so, it's so humbling. Right. And so you get there. And, uh, anyway, so, uh, so I went through IFS and so I went to IFS in February of 09 and graduated IFS, came back, uh, with my, with my entry ticket for pilot training. Uh, and then I started pilot training in May and pilot training for the Air Force that is, is broken into, um, is broken and pilot training has changed, right? I'll, I'll tell you how, how it was for me and, I, and if you want to talk about why it's changing and what that looks like now, we can talk about that a little bit, um, but when I went through flight school, was broken up into three phases. So phase one, phase two, phase three, and uh, the phases did not overlap with each other. They were very, very segmented. Um, so phase one was um, pure academics, right? And that was and that was a six to eight week program where it was pure classroom, pure academic aerodynamics, you know, uh, theory. Yeah. Um, you know all these you know weather that kind of and stuff this is right? all very so generic
0: like, this isn't uh, particular to uh, any any airframe like this is just how how and why this, flight works this is why planes yeah, don't correct. fall out of the sky like they seem like they ought to correct correct and, yeah, and, so and this it's is just long thing. enough to forget all of the practical flying stuff you may have picked up in pueblo yeah
1: this is correct <laughs> right so um and so but there is um you know, but there there are checkpoints along the way, right? Like you gotta you gotta pass all your tests, right? Your academic tests, So you fail your academic tests, and you go on what we call academic cap, which is a commander's awareness program, which basically your 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 you know your beautiful mug gets put on the commander's board as someone that they like, you may not make it, yeah. you know. Uh, and so, um, anyways, uh, you have to make it through. So I went through went through academics, um, made it by by the skin of my teeth. Um, you know, I uh, you know they have this weird. It's a standard in the Air Force, it is anyways, that um like you can pass, but you can also pass and still get put on a list, which right. is interesting. So um, you know, like for me, you know, I'm kind of a pass fail kind of guy, like either you make it or you don't, yeah. right? But in the Air Force, if you uh failing is eighty five percent and below. Um, but if you score below ninety, but if you're within the eighty five to ninety percent range, you get put on a list anyways. And so it's not the capitalist, but it's like, a like another list, yeah. you know, like, it's kind of like the, like the, like the stoplight, like red, yellow, green, right? Like it's not a green light, but it's not a red light. Right. Like you're on the yellow light, you
0: know? At so like where, where in this process does your performance kind of start to inform what your career path is going to look like? Uh, so what I'm saying is like, how, how much does your performance in, in stage one, inform maybe ultimately what you're going to end up flying because i assume like tough enough to get to flight school but then what what plane you end up flying i assume is fairly competitive as well so at what point does that really start to factor into what that picture is going to look like for you
1: yeah it does uh it's it's minimal at this point right so you have to understand so uh, i haven't talked about this but but flight school um the it is a very objective scoring system where you know they call it mass, right? And I forget what the mass is called, but basically the the mass is your composite score from the moment you start to the moment you finish. And that what goes into that score is your academic results, right? It, um your daily flight your daily flight performance results, your simulator results, your check ride results, um, your peer feedback, right? So your peers rank you, right? Like are you a bro or are you someone that no one wants to be around? Um, what is your, what does your commander think of you, right? Like, does your commander think that you have the aptitude and the personality to be an officer and, and, and a pilot in the United States Air Force? So it is this composite number that spits out at the end of flight school. And that, and that gives you the number of which they then rank order the class, right? So they give a one to end, you know, like one through 10 of, Hey, you know, Kale's, you know, he's right up here at the top. You know, we got, we got Bill, he's a dirt bag. He's kind of like, you know, eight out of 10 down here. Right. So, um, so you know, so those numbers start to go into that algorithm, if you will, uh, early on in academics. But but they're they're not that impactful because what's really impactful is what happens in phase two. Phase two is probably, in my opinion, arguably the most important phase because um, in phase two, right? So when you graduate from academics, um, you move into uh, flying the T six, right? So the T six Texan two, um, it is a uh, it's a turboprop tandem. Uh, so you got the, the student in the front, pilot uh, instructor in the back. Um, it's a really wonderful airplane. I love that airplane. Uh, in fact, that's the last airplane I flew and I was instructing in that airplane for a couple years before I was at my current post. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit, but um, just a phenomenal airplane. Um, it is, uh, I mean, imagine driving a Honda Civic, but with like an engine of a Ferrari, right? There's nothing you couldn't do. Um, it was you know, this, this airframe that like you, was like go into like the, you know, Hertz rental. Right. And you're like, Hey, I want that one in the lot. Right. And like, and it just, it looks okay. You know, like it's nothing like really, like nothing's really going to pop out. It's like, man, that's a really awesome vehicle. But then you fire up the engine and you get out there and you're like, Holy cow, I, there's nothing I can't do with this airplane. Um, and so in phase two, phase
0: two, am, is I, looking, broken down and, the, am I looking at the right plane here?
1: You are, you are, that is it. So, uh, it's a little hot rod, man. Yeah, it's um, So you have to understand, uh, t- proportionally speaking, um, that airplane, I think, is approximately five-ish million dollars a pop, right? Dang. Um, b- but uh, of that five million dollars, about three and a half million of it is in the ejection seat. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so you have to understand so that's where the air force puts its importance right because they know like student pilots are flying these airplanes we need to have we need to have the martin baker ejection seat which is zero zero rated which means that you can be at zero altitude zero airspeed pull the handle and you're going to get a good enough boost to get two swings under the parachute before you hit the ground um whereas in other airplanes you need to have some airspeed or some altitude for survivability Um, this is so a, the Martin.
0: this is a major aside, so don't let me completely derail you here, but it's worth mentioning yeah. because, uh, we love, uh, space and all things rockets here on the side. So- well, not all things rockets here on the side. So- Cause I hate Russian rockets and ch- <laughs> Chinese rockets too, for that matter, um, which are really Great. just poorly made copies of, of American and private company rockets. But, uh, we love all things rockets here on the Sons of podcast. And did you know that the, the first few shuttles had ejection seats? I did. Is that not I mean I can you like you have a better idea of what that means than the average person? Can you imagine punching out of a shuttle launch?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> uh, no I can't and I don't want to. Um <laughs> but the beautiful thing about that is that what people don't understand um and and, and maybe you do. But ejecting from a from a an aerial vehicle like the space shuttle um if you if you if you just have to understand the speed velocity and, and where you are in time and space when that happens it is highly likely that when you press the button or pull the handle or whatever it is that you do in that airplane you probably black out right from from the from the sheer physics of what's happening yeah. um and you probably black out and don't experience the worst of it um you know and you probably wake up underneath a canopy you know fingers crossed hopefully um and you know, only to find out later that, oh yeah, hey,
0: I actually made it out alive. Yeah, you know. Well, they um, you know, they weren't the first ejection seats in a human-rated space vehicle because the Gemini capsules, so our our first man capsules were Mercury, oh, yeah. our second oh. man capsules were Gemini. The Gemini capsules had ejection seats. It's trippy. Oh. Like you you can you can see one. I can't remember from which flight it is, uh, out at Kennedy. Like the, the actual landed capsule is, is at Kennedy Space Center, and oh. you can look in it and stuff and it's just again you can see the the test footage from them testing being able to to punch out of that capsule just insane
1: yeah i know and uh we're talking you know data technology too yeah. right so um you know there's a lot of a lot of faith and hope that went into uh <laughs> the uh, survivability of yeah. those of those items
0: so so phase 2 you finally got your, yeah, you so, got your hands yeah, on a real so airplane yeah so the finally. down and
1: dirty of phase 2 i don't want to go I don't, want to, I don't want to bore you or the listeners, um, but phase two essentially is where, um, you know, looking back on it as an instructor from a flight school, I used to think of, and I under, and I appreciated phase two as this is how we teach people how to fly airplanes. And so it's not until phase three where we take people who know how to fly airplanes and we actually make them into pilots. So uh, so we're, we're teaching people how to fly airplanes in phase two, and we teach them the basics from... Um, you know, just how to do landings, right? Basic aircraft maneuvers, right? And then we get more advanced with uh, navigation requirements, and then we move into uh, we move into uh, basic aerobatics, advanced aerobatics, um, pulling G's under load, um, and then you know, and then simultaneously as they get on to the advanced navigation phase, as they start rolling into the formation stuff, and so that's where we're teaching them how to do formation maneuvers, um, and they really kind of get. The foundations laid of hey this is how you're gonna fly military aircraft yeah um which is which is uh, day and night different than general aviation and so um and it, and it is the performance of the student in phase two that really um will dictate their future and what i mean by that is when a student completes phase two and this is why pilot training is called SUPT so specialized undergraduate pilot training is because phase two leads into phase three and phase three is a specialized track for a lead in to an actual uh, weapons platform. Right? So when they graduate the T six, everybody goes through the T six as the main feeder. Right. But um, if the student has performed uh well in phase two and desires to pursue a track that is commensurate with flying fighters or bombers then they get selected to go fly the t-38 and so if a student goes through phase two and does well uh, and selects to fly aircraft that are going to be you know airlift or tanker uh, or basically anything other than fighter uh, fighter bomber they're going to go fly the t1 which is a it's a beachcraft for it's a beach 400. It's basically just a, a little private business jet that the air force purchased for, for training. Um, and then a very, very, very select few individuals, uh, we call these, uh, weirdos is what we call them. Uh, the folks who want to fly helicopters. Um, <laughs> so, uh, they go through fixed wing, uh, in phase two and they say, you know what? I really want to fly air force helicopters. And so, uh, one it's typically about one student per class gets picked up for helos and uh and they will then leave um, leave their herd if you will they'll leave yeah. their clan you know they'll say goodbye and then they'll they'll go to a different base and they go do helo training and that's what the, it's like a joint training program i think with the army
0: i mean um, at the at the risk of sounding significantly more ignorant than yeah. i normally do the, the thought just hadn't ever crossed my mind like it's not even on my radar no pun intended that the air force flies any helicopters at all. It's just so tightly associated with the army in particular. And then, you know, you know, the Navy flies some because occasionally they got to go pluck a pilot out of the, out of the drink. Um, (laughs) Right. right. I I mean, at least from, from my part, I just don't ever think about the air force flying helicopters at all.
1: Yeah. Uh, And, and and you are not alone uh, in, in your, um, in your thoughts because a lot of folks feel the same way. They're like, like, wait, the air force has helicopters. I'm like, yeah, actually we got, we got quite a few.
0: I mean, even, Um, even the president goes to the Marines for a helicopter. Yep, he does. (laughs) Uh, and
1: so anyways, um, yeah. So performance in phase two will dictate, you know, what happens. And so when students then progress onto their airframe of selection for phase three, then they, uh, essentially, so a student who goes into the fighter-bomber track uh, via the T-38 will then, basically, the the, the program outcomes uh, for T-38s is basically teaching people how to fly airplanes at 400 knots. So you have to understand, right, so the T-6 tops out somewhere in the low 200s, right? Uh, I mean, you can go up to 300, that's the maximum, right? But we, for training purposes, we stay below 250. Um, and so... Your, your your mental uh capacity to process information that 250 knots or less right um is such that when you make the leap from 200 to 400 plus right 400 450 yeah um, you're having to you're having to process information and then act or react accordingly twice as fast yeah um, and so essentially the, the major hurdle there is basically learning how to do things at that speed.
2: Right.
1: Um, and it's not too different because uh, they still teach what we call a single seat mindset. Right. So like there's only one pilot operating the airframe. Uh, whereas that is the complete opposite for students who go to the T1 where we're teaching crew mentality. So pilot co-pilot. Um, and so working as a crew, running through procedures as a crew you know essentially doing all the things that military aviators do as a crew right, right? um and so there, there are inherent complexities with that right so um you know we've seen a lot of aircraft mishaps as a result of poor crew management right um not understanding what someone means when they say something or um having you know this is not uncommon right like you have a pilot who calls for a certain checklist and then the co-pilot you know is running through that checklist and missing steps in the checklist. Right. And so, um, and having to navigate through that and figure out like, Hey dude, you missed that step, you know, like, so anyways, yeah. um, and so folks who go through the T 38, right. They are going to be selected for, you know, a fighter aircraft, uh, or a bomber aircraft. Yeah. And so folks who go through the T one are going to get picked up for, uh, anything in essentially, um, uh, anything mobility related. Right. So, tankers airlift cargo um there's a couple specialties that are in there as well um and then uh along with that we have our isr platforms right so platforms that are, you know are there for um picking up signals uh eavesdropping on radio frequencies um uh, picking up weather patterns right so like the rc-135 rivet joints out of off it Right, um, who are flying out there, and they're basically sensing the atmospheric conditions for any nuclear debris, like in case somebody popped off a nuke that we didn't know yeah. about, you know. And so, um, you know, so essentially the the meat potatoes uh, of that is is um, excuse me, not meat potatoes, but essentially the the main. Uh, Percentage of the students we graduate, right? Because we graduate more T one pilots than we do T thirty T thirty eight pilots, just because there are more airplanes.
0: Yeah. Well, and I was going to um, I was going to ask kind of what field. that ratio comes out to, because again, I, I assume the <coughs> the you know the T thirty eight is I would assume where a larger majority of guys want to end up.
1: Yeah. So guys want to guys and gals. I keep saying guys. I mean, there's plenty of uh, there's
0: it's a, a it's a colloquial guys. It's like a it's yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, Goonies. Yeah, yeah, it's hey sure. you guys.
1: Yeah. Um, some of the best students i've ever had have been females which is phenomenal uh because it was just amazing to watch um you know for so long you know female pilots oh females weren't allowed to be pilots yeah. you know and so um, to see um the the cultural shift and then not only that too but just the um where we are now it, it's pretty phenomenal um but uh yeah you're right so most folks go through you know and they want that t38 yeah. right because it you know, they, they go to an air show as a kid, you know, and that airplane, you know, it's loud, it's fast. It's, well, and
0: that's, uh, that's another yeah, space program you know, tie-in, because the T-38s are, that's what NASA's uh, little jet fleet is, that they fly the astronauts right. around in all the time.
1: Right. Uh, funny note, in uh, Top Gun 1, uh, the original Top Gun, it was uh, T-38s that were the MiGs that were getting yeah, blown up. Yeah. So, <laughs> which I've always found funny. Uh, and so, anyways, Also from a, um, a
0: nondescript evil country. This is true. They don't like this to. They don't true. like the name the bad guys in I, Top Gun movies. I,
1: I, I couldn't. I, I not to. I don't want to jump too far forward. But I, I I couldn't get over the the humor of um, the similarities between the two movies. Where in Top Gun One and Top Gun Two, where uh, both um, the the adversary pilots were in like all black, like they were like in like yes. the, like the like Star Wars Empire. Oh, black, they're absolutely
0: know? yes, like they're flying TIE yeah. fighters. So anyways, um, so that's that, right? So
1: students graduate, right? And then they, you know, upon graduation from flight school, they get their assignment, right? And So assignment night at flight school is a really big deal with a capital, with with all capitals, right? It's a big deal, right? Because this is the culmination, right, of like everything that they've been working for for, you know, at a minimum the past year. But I mean, you think about all the hurdles it takes just to even get into flight school. Um, you know, so a lot of, for a lot of folks, this is like the, 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 uh, culmination of like a life's effort. Right. Right. You know, and so they get there and this is where they find out what, what weapon system they're going to be assigned. Um, and you, you see a lot of, a a lot of excitement, you see some tears, you see some frustration. Uh, it's, it's really, um it's really a wonderful event to go to and i yeah. and i thoroughly enjoyed going to it as a student and then as an instructor in the flight school for years afterwards it was great to go to um and it is that it is at assignment night where they get assigned to like hey you're gonna fly the f-35 yeah you're gonna fly c-17s you're gonna fly a tons you're gonna fly f-15s or whatever and so yeah. um it's a really cool experience right and then students graduate and then after graduation uh they're off to the races and they got a they've got another you know, arguably 18 to 24 months of follow on training in that airframe, right? Right, you've got you've got basic, you got what we call FTU, um, uh, flight training units, uh, you know, which is like basically the B course, right? So they call it the B, the B course. the B course is short for basic course, where it's like, okay, hey, we're going to teach you the basics of flying an F 15, right? And then, you know, once they graduate B course, then they go to their assigned unit, and at this, at their assigned unit. Gosh, and then they've just got a whole uh just a whole list of qualifications right. that they have to go through, right? They gotta go through two ship, they gotta go through four ship, they gotta go through wingman upgrade, they gotta go through flight lead upgrade, they gotta go through four ship upgrade, they gotta go through like, you know, and, and depending on what airframe they get to, you know, um not all airframes are the same, yeah. right? So you've got you've got F sixteens that do various missions, right? So you've got an F sixteen unit that might be like the wild weasels. Right. And so the wild weasels, are you familiar with the wild weasels? So the wild weasels are, um, this is their, their unique breed. They're actually my favorite breed because, um, they are the guys and gals who intentionally make themselves, uh, intentionally expose themselves to danger to eliminate the threat. So these are the folks who fly in. Um, and essentially they are the flying, um, decoys, if you will. And essentially, they're trying to fly into enemy territory to activate uh, a surface-to-air missile site. And while they've got other units who are in a standoff area, right? So they've got you know, like you know, a handful of aircraft that are in a in a safe airspace at a safe distance, right? Right. Um, and they're kind of just orbiting, right? And they're like, you know, what we- weapons are ready, right? They're ready to to deploy. And then you've got this F-16 and his buddy, and they're just flying through the flying through the crud trying to activate a Sam site because once that Sam site gets activated, then the folks who are in the safe zone can lock on, pull triggers, right. And neutralize that threat all while that F-16 is trying to haul tail out of there and not get killed. So, (laughs) um, you know, so the wild weasels are are a unique breed and so they're the folks who are running around trying, trying to get shot at, but yet not trying to die at the same time. So
0: no, that's awesome. I was yeah, checking so. on a little bit while you were listing off, uh, you know, all the different airframes they could end up in because, and this, this might just be like, this might be me judging a book by its cover. Uh, but the idea of somebody, uh, training in a T-36 to fly an A-10, I, I assume on a performance level, the T-36 <laughs> would, would, would outfly that plane every day of the week.
1: So, um, so, uh, I don't do this to, to be mean, but it's a T-38. Uh, my, just because I don't want to
0: yeah, that's why you're to, the cool guy and i'm the podcast host you know, my friend well,
1: no 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 it's not that <laughs> at all i just i just don't want someone to come back to you later and be like hey dude you know
0: you were saying no. long number for a long fair time." fair enough correct so, me all night long yeah, yeah so uh
1: yeah so there is a performance difference um <laughs> uh but really that performance difference is really only it's really only isolating the speed yeah Right. And so you have to understand um you know airspeed is one thing but maneuverability is another right and so uh, the a10 is uh significantly more maneuverable
2: yeah right
1: than a, than a t-38 right and so um sure the t-38 can can fly significantly faster right um but the a10 it needs to fly slow for a very important reason right because it's got to provide support for troops in contact it's just, right it's am- and it's got it and
0: it's amazing how indestructible the a the a10 is both combat-wise and politically, they cannot kill that <laughs> plane. They can't.
1: I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I, I was more... You said it was indestructible uh, and I was like, oh, man, I was like, oh, Congress has tried to kill that airplane for so many years. And they just it. can't do it. They just can't do it. No, uh, because there's just so many buyers, you know? I mean, the... Um, you know it the moment that congress says like hey we're pulling the plug you know like or the air force says hey we're done with it like y- you've got the army and the marine corps who are who are right there going hey w- we'll buy all of them yeah you know uh we'll take all of them we, we're not we're not like a not like a two for one deal like we'll buy them all yeah. you know um i mean it's so,
0: it's a, it's a tank with wings i mean it's they they're just unrivaled in close contact support
1: well you know and so we can talk about this uh Later, but the A10 I think is one of the last few airplanes that was built around one single purpose, you know. And so they were like, "Hey, we need an airplane that can destroy Russian tanks, right in mass, right?" Yeah. Um, so how do we do that? Okay, well we do that with you know with this certain type of ammunition that can be deployed with a with a Gatling gun, right? okay we we know that we know the weapon that we need, let's just build an airplane around yes, that. and, and that's what they did
2: yeah
1: um and so and that was the last one of the last airplanes that they designed an airplane specifically for one mission um and, and which is why it's been one of one of the reasons why it's been so useful is because of that yeah, um, when you try and develop a Swiss army knife, right an airplane that is really good it, that that can do a lot of things but isn't really great at any of them um that's where you find an airplane like an F4. Yeah. Right. Um, In particular, right. And like, and it sounds like I'm trashing the F35 right now because I'm not. Um, But, you know, when you get an airframe like the F4, right. Where like they, the army, the Navy, I'm sorry, the air force, the Navy and the Marine Corps are like, Hey, yeah, we'll, we'll do a joint. We'll do a joint airframe. Right. Well, when you get three people at the dinner table, you know, they've got three different requirements. Like Air Force is like, hey, I need to do this. Navy's like, that's cool, but I need to do this. Yeah. And the Marine Corps is like, well, you know, you know, I kind of need to do both, but I need to do this too. Yeah. And so, and when they try and develop an airframe that satisfies all those needs, but isn't really great at any of them, yeah, right? You, you find yourself with an airframe that can do the job, but it's not really great at doing the
0: Didn't job. Didn't it have yeah. no guns or initially no guns? Yeah. Yeah, that's
1: like the that's the big storyline with the F four, right? The F four was they they built this airframe, and they're like, yeah, hey, dogfighting, as we saw it in Korea and in, in World War II, is a thing in the past, right? No one's gonna use bullets anymore, right? It's all missiles, right? Well, you know, and then they go to Vietnam, yeah. and they're getting shot out of the sky by by Soviet Mig's, right? Um, who happen to be flying in North Vietnam, you know, shocker, yeah, uh, and. Randomly. Uh, yeah, randomly, because the uh, the North Vietnamese are, are have that kind of technology, yeah. and so uh, at the time, anyways, and so yeah, and they're like, oh, well, I guess we should put a gun on this thing because we keep losing them, you know. And oh, by the way, right, we can only put you know four missiles on there. Well, what happens when you run out of missiles and you don't have anything yeah. else?
0: <laughs> now, is this uh, is this fact or is this just Top Gun lore from the first movie that really that scenario? <laughs> Uh, with the F four in particular in Vietnam is what gave birth to uh, Top Gun, the uh, the actual school. I mean, I know that's yeah. I know that's the Navy side of the house, but
1: yeah. So um, uh, that is more. I, I can't speak to it directly, but I can confidently say that it is more factual than not factual, yeah. um, and in more ways than one. Right, not only for the Navy but for the Air Force yeah. too. Um, and this is something that we uh, we studied here at, at a school that I just completed a year and a half ago. Um, we found that, um, that aviators were, um, uh, shockingly unprepared for aerial warfare in Vietnam. Um, and, and it was a result of the training that they had received leading up to, uh, being deployed into combat. And so they were woefully unprepared for the type of combat that they were facing. And we were losing, um, resources and when i say resources i mean you know material and personnel um in in larger quantities than we are willing to stomach yeah. and what came from that was hey we've got to find a way to better train these folks and better prepare them for for the type of combat they're that they're going to see and uh and that is inherently the 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 roots if you will or the original seeds of schools like top gun yeah and and for the air force the equivalent of top gun is what we call the wick it's the wic it's the the weapons instructor course um and so uh, of which you know they talk about it in top Gun to you but like you know the patch wearers right people who get to wear the patch you know and so like you get this special patch you know on your shoulder that you're you're a graduate you're a, you're a wick grad yeah or you're a top you're a top gun grad um you know anyone who wears the patch you know they're kind of like you know they're like well they're the expert yeah. you know um and so yeah, so uh now the details of that I, I can't speak to because I don't know the full history on it, but I okay. do know uh for for a relatively certain fact yeah. that, that those are the the origins of those two schools.
0: So that's we we dog we dog trailed, rabbit trailed, we followed some trail here. So uh yeah. We we talked we talked phase three, we didn't talk about what you flew in phase three. Sure, yeah. I so I was a you wanna talk about
1: that now? Yeah. I d I, I don't want to cut you off. No, no, you're good. Yeah. So, um, so I flew T once in phase three and, uh, admittedly, I was a little devastated about it. Um, and so I I had some, um,
0: I mean, by the time phase three comes around, you kind of know where you stand. Like, I mean, do you, you, or end of phase two, do you kind of know where you're headed?
1: Yeah, you do. You know, I mean, like what happens in, Uh, in phase two is really interesting and and it never ceases to amaze me, even when it happened to me and then when I observed it as an instructor. What happens in phase two is the folks that you think are going to be the performers, right, uh, oftentimes turn out to be the underperformers. And it's the folks who come in who you kind of weren't really expecting and they turn out to be the rock stars. And and so that happened uh, in my class where... Um, you know, like where I had some good friends of mine who, you know, at the initial onset, you know, first impression, I was like, Oh man, this this guy's cool and all, but I you know, I, I don't know if he's gonna be a fighter pilot, you know. Um and as you're going through phase two and you and you're hearing about how they're doing on their rides and their and their check ride results, and you're like, Oh my gosh, these folks are just crushing it, you know, yeah. like and, and I am like just I'm I'm making it and I'm doing well, but I'm not crushing it, yeah. you know. Um So anyway, so I, uh, so I went T1s and, um, and admittedly, you know, there was a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of, uh, feeling like I had failed a little bit, you know, um, because, uh, I just, you know, I never really thought about flying T1s before. And so now that that decision was made for me, you know, I'm like, well, you know, the path to being a fighter bomber pilot, you know, that's, that's turned off. Yeah. It's gone right? Gone. Um, so now I got to find out. Is that, was that going to be when, one of
0: my, that was going to be one of my questions. Like once you've gone down one of these paths, is, is that it? Does anybody ever make the jump? Is there any way to cross that chasm?
1: Yeah. So some folks do, but they're, they're more unicorn in nature. Yeah. Right. Um, they're, they're rare. It's a, it's a really rare case. Um, you know, under, under normal peacetime right now that all changes when we're in a state of war. Like Congress declared war, not what we've experienced yeah, in the yeah. past 20 years, right? right? Like when I'm talking, like we declare a state of war on a nation, yeah. right? Um, so when we change to a full-on war footing, right? Um, none of that matters anymore, right? If you've got wings on your on your uniform, you are qualified to fly anything the Air Force needs you to fly, and so and, and that's happened historically. You can you can look back historically. You've seen folks who um, who flew uh, just a, a wide myriad of airframes, you know, yeah. because, you know, they, they flew this and then they're like, all right, well, the air force needs you to do this and you go do this. Right. Um, but in peacetime, you know, um, the, the, the service gets a little bit more stingy, you know, they're like, okay, well, you know, you, you know, like, and, and, and I've, I've faced this roadblock and I'll, I'll talk about this. Uh, I, I should, I'll just talk about it now. Um, so I flew T ones and then, uh, I ended up graduating. uh, And when I graduated, uh, I got selected to be what we call a FAPE. And a FAPE is uh, an acronym for uh, a first assignment instructor pilot. And so, what that means is the flight school uh, and each class will pick one individual who they're going to keep behind to teach at the flight school. So, your first assignment is teaching, right? Teaching at the flight school as a certified instructor, right? Which is, which is, uh, awesome and terrifying all at the same yeah, I was time. I say right? that. Because that's,
0: I'm sure it's it's probably not what you wanted, but it's simultaneously kind of a really cool vote of confidence from people you were just trusting to teach you to fly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's all of that, right? And so um, so I got picked up to be a FAPE, and I went out to San Antonio for instructor school, uh, did my time out there, graduated instructor school with flying colors, did great, came back. And then uh, I was I flew the T-1, uh, for an additional three and a half years of the flight school teaching, which uh, was was awesome. Now we are talking about. There's a reason why I said that. We were talking about making the jump, right? Wartime, peacetime, tribal. How do we? What was the question you're asking? Like me? When,
0: once you know, once you've gone down that path, one way or the other, uh, yeah, you know, okay, can okay. can can you go either direction? I mean, I, I yeah. assume in that phase three, there's some people that just don't cut it in phase three. I mean, if you're, yeah, you know, yeah. is, is that a thing where if you don't cut it in the path you were put in, in phase three, you're, you're just done or do they move you? Like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So that's an interesting topic, um, because, um, there is, uh, different schools of thought and I am very convicted in my, in my thinking on this, uh, there is a theory, or there, there, or there are leadership, there, there, there is leadership with the mentality that uh, if a T thirty eight student washes out, then they will just reflow that student into a, into a T one program, which I am adamantly against, right? Uh, for a myriad of reasons, right? To name a few, uh, one, y- you set this precedent that. T one pilots are second class citizens, right You set this stamp you set this precedent that well anybody can go through a t1 you know right uh, so you're not really that special um, or you're not really that qualified you know and, and the reason why I take serious offense to that is because um, not only as a student but as an instructor at the school, um, I saw n- multiple individuals who were clear number ones in the class. Select T ones over T thirty eights, and and it just it just just ruffled all sorts of feathers on the base. They were like, they're like like, what do you mean you're the number one in the class? So like, why aren't you going T thirty eight? So I like, do I just don't, want, I, don't want to fly T38. I want to fly T thirty eight. I want to fly T one. I want to be a C five pilot. And it just ruffled so many feathers. It just like you know like the fighter dudes were like like oh they're like we're the best. Why don't you want to come be the best with us? And he's like, well I am the best. I'm just gonna go be the best in the T one. So. <laughs> go, go pound sand, bro. Uh, you know? I love it. Uh, and, uh, so anyways, so, um, there's that. And then also, um, and I've seen this too, right. And I'm going to be careful how I say this because, uh, I don't know how many, who, who all is listening out there. Um, but I have seen particularly with the garden reserve individuals, right. Um, if individuals who come through, who are going to be on active duty, but guard reserve, they're going through the flight school anyways. Uh, to be a pilot in the guard reserve unit that they're in, right, you have to understand that that they got there on the nomination of, you know, senior members and, and Congress people. Right. And so we have, we have had the situation where, um, where members uh, who guardsmen, right. So just hypothetically speaking, a guard member in the state of Florida, right. The, the, uh, the air guard up in Jacksonville, right. Is a fighter unit. Yeah. If you didn't know that. So the fighter unit up in Jacksonville, right? So let's just say this, this is not at all in relation to anybody that I know or anything that's happened, but I'll just use it just because it's on my mind. If a member from that unit came through and, uh, and washed out of T-38s, right, you have to understand um, colors of money, right? When we're talking government colors of money, right? Um, so that, that, that set of money has been set aside for that individual from that guard unit to go through flight school. Right. If that member doesn't make it through flight school, they lose that money. Right. And that unit doesn't get their money back. right? And so they've already paid for that individual to go through. And that individual doesn't make it through. Well, then they're out, you know, the whatever price tag that is. Yeah. So it gets a little political when, in particular, with T-38 folks who, if they don't make it through, you know, we start getting some strange phone calls from, you know, two, three-star generals. Right senators like hey um you know hey this Staley kid right he's got to make it through you know like you've you've got to find a way to get him through you know and so like that's happened in the past yeah um and so all that being said right the ability to cross flow uh it's hard it's rare it happens but it's not the it is not the normal yeah so um i've seen it uh, in, the, in the case that I did see it, where it was the right decision, uh, was a member that I served with in my follow-on assignment. So after I finished flying T1s as an instructor at the flight school, um, uh, I got selected to go fly C-17s at a joint base Charleston in South Carolina, uh, which uh, was a phenomenal assignment for a lot of reasons. Uh, but while I was there, someone that I served with um, was a T-38 student who um, just by sheer luck of the draw um, when they went through, there was, there were no fighters available, which blew my mind. I was like, so you, you mean to tell me that you have a T-38 graduate student and you don't have a fighter to put this individual in? They're like, no, well, uh, well, we'll just put him in a C-17. And so this individual came to a C-17 and, uh, and he was great. He was a phenomenal pilot, yeah. a lot of skill, a lot of aptitude. And, um, and they introduced a program that they were like, Hey, we're going to select one, one individual from the base to go cross flow into the f-35 and so and, and through a series of events he got picked up for it and he went off and did it but like i said that unicorn right yeah. this is a rare case right. happens happens once every five to ten years you know yeah. it just it's it's rare so anyway so so i did my time at the flight school teaching had a great time uh now, for a lot of reasons that assignment was great sorry yeah, no i, I want to talk
0: to that assignment a little bit because it's um you know, it's you know, you know you're not going into a, a fighter, but like where was being a fape on on your radar? Like I gotta assume there's some part of you, as particularly as you cite kind of uh, nine eleven as a bit of an impetus for no, we're we're gonna go ahead and do this this military thing. We're I'm, you know, I'm gonna go fly. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. you're at what point what year is this that you're graduating flight school? Yeah,
1: so I graduated in June of two thousand ten.
0: So, so 2010, so 13 months. So, yeah. you know, depending on, um, you know, depending on the area of the world, we've been at war for, you know, either nine or seven ish years at that point, like, I gotta believe sure. some part of you wanted to go get in the fight.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. I was, I was, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to get over there, you know, get some sand in my boots, you know, and go do the J O B. Um, you know, so being a fap was low, was, was really low on my list. Um, the thing about being a fape though is that it doesn't matter where you put it on your list, right? If the squadron wants you, they're going to take you. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I've seen guys who that they're like, "Yeah, you're going to get faped," and they were like, they're like, well, I'm going to put it on the very last item on my list," and they still get it anyways. Yeah.
0: Um, so, what does that do for you career wise? Like, by time you're, uh, you know, you're, you're placed in another airframe, does that does that put you ahead or behind? You know, both so, yeah, like career yeah, and it, it, pilot capability wise.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting, right? So, um, so you have to, you have to think of it this way. (laughs) So when I went through a flight school and then when I graduated and then I was an instructor, I'm getting three and a half years of, of instructor level aviation, right? When all of my peers who graduated, right, in particular, the folks who went through T1s, I mean, they're co-pilots for like almost two years, right so they're sitting in the right seat just reading checklists doing some things right with like without any like real responsibility
2: yeah
1: right um and then you know they upgrade to aircraft commander so they move to the left seat after a couple of years right and then it takes another year or so before they upgrade to instructor so by the time that I left the flight school as an instructor and I was leaving to go to the C17 um, I had a buddy of mine. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. He's not in the service anymore. Um, but he had made this post on social media. He's like, Hey, he's like, you know, I just, just upgraded the aircraft commander and like, and I kind of sent him like this like passive jab. I was like, Hey, welcome to the club. I've been <laughs> here for four years, you know? Right. Uh, you know, I was like, I was like, Hey, it's about time. You're finally an adult. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, I was just like, Hey, I was like, like, good. You can actually make your own decisions now, you know? Um, and so it was just a little passive jab at him. Um, but uh, he's a good dude, and um, anyways, yeah. So, but what was interesting is that like when I left my assignment as an instructor and I went to the C seventeen, and I'm going through the initial qualification for the C seventeen. Um, you know, the instructors there are just so used to just dealing with folks right out of high school, right? Yeah, you know? um, and so I get there with all of this just experience and airmanship and and just you know air discipline and all these things uh and they're like oh yeah they're like yeah you're going to get through this pretty quick and so like i got put on this like accelerated path they're like basically like i got the shortcut you know like around right. like hey like you don't you don't need to do any of this because you you clearly got your your stuff in the soccer right? yeah. you're good to go and so um you know but what's interesting is that you know when i got to my unit in charleston you know like i show up and i'm a you know i'm a captain at this time and all of my captain peers who are there um they're all instructors you know and i show up as a co-pilot right and like and grant and granted i'm on like this accelerated timeline where i'm going to upgrade pretty quickly but i mean all of a sudden i'm playing i'm playing catch up now you know so i get to charleston and i'm like i'm like dude i gotta i gotta fly for like i gotta fly my tail off for like six months to like get my hours I got to go to upgrade school. I got to come back. I got to complete my evaluation. Then I got to like fly my tail off again to get my next little chunk of hours before I go to instructor school. Um, so my Charleston assignment was extremely busy because I was playing catch up. right? right? Because, um, you know, you're not just a pilot in the Air Force. You're also an officer, right? And so uh, you're an officer first is what we like to say. So, you know, so I had to do all of the officer things, Right. As, uh, as well as the pilot things.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Whereas, you know, my, my career path was a little flopped, uh, flip flopped, if you will, where I did um, I did a lot of the officer things in my first assignment, right. I had the opportunity to do that while I was simultaneously getting my instructor hours. Um, but then when I came to Charleston, right, all of my peers had done all of the aircraft things and the C-17 and then they were now just getting into the officer things. Yeah. And so like, we were kind of like, you know, different flows of traffic, right, on a highway, uh, high fiving each other, if you will. So, um, there was a big catch-up uh, time that I had to deal with in Charleston, yeah. um, which was good, bad, all at the same time. Um, it made my time, um, it made it challenging, but it was enjoyable yeah. at the same time. I got, I'm telling you, man, that the some of the things I got to be involved with in 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 Charleston, finding C17, are just memories that I'll have like for
0: my whole life. How long, I'll were you, never how long were you in the C-17?
1: Ironically, I was only there for
0: three years, three years to, to the week actually. So did, did you de- deploy flying a uh, C-17 at all or no? Loved it. Yeah. yeah but did, it. but uh, um, did you actually deploy in that plane or no? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did.
1: I did a short, I did a short deployment. I was deployed for 90 days um, in uh, Southwest Asia in, uh, in IED air Base, which is in Qatar. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was an IED uh, for ninety days and uh, got to partake in some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, um, and uh, but not only that too, but but Joint Base Charleston in South Carolina is a unique base because there's a lot of different missions that are there, and so uh when you think C17s you think you know just you know airlift right um but there's just a lot of other things that the aircraft does yeah. um Which, I got, well
0: I got, I got I got, we'll throw up a picture on Instagram at some point after the the episode yeah, yeah. drops but paint a paint a picture here right like this is not a small aircraft <laughs> but it's not the biggest aircraft
1: it's not it's not um yeah so it is uh man uh, I don't I don't know how to describe it honestly um Well, like, like,
0: give me this, like what's, what's bigger and what's smaller? Like, give me the next biggest airframe and the, and the next one down. Okay.
1: So we'll start with the biggest, right? So the C-5 Galaxy, right, is the the biggest airframe. Um, and in terms of missions, right? So let's talk about what the aircraft is designed to do, right? So the, the C-5 was designed to be a strat airlift airplane. So strategic airlift. Right, so what that means is that you're supposed to load down a C five with a whole bunch of stuff, and fly it from point A to point B, right? In both uh, permissive environments, right? So we're talking like I'm going to fly from you know um, from San Antonio, Texas, into Ramstein Air Base in Germany, right? Permissive environments, nice long plush airfields, right, with a lot of amenities, right? You know all the things, um, basically like an international airport, right? And then all of the stuff that's on that C5 then gets offloaded into uh, airframes that are, are TAC airlift, right? So tactical airlift. And so when you hear that, a lot of folks think uh, C-130s and C-17s. And so the next size down from the C5 is the C-17. And so the C-17 uh, was designed to do both Strat airlift and TAC airlift, but mainly was designed to do TAC airlift. Um because the C one hundred and thirty is specifically TAC airlift, and so the C one hundred and thirty is smaller than a C seventeen. So those are your three, right? From big as a small, C five. So that prompts a,
0: that prompts a couple of questions for me. So, like yeah. I, I know, and it might be that I've I've heard about this in reference to the the C 130s So I'm interested to see if this is the case with the C seventeens, since they're designed for non-permissive. Like if you're if you're in um, you know an active if you're landing or taking off in an active war zone are you, is the c17 capable of and are you required to do those super steep landings and takeoffs to, to minimize yep. exposure yeah that's, so
1: yeah so that's so that's what really classifies that's that's what gives it the tacky airlift qualification right um or or kind of stamp of approval right is your ability to um to enter and depart an airfield that may not be the most permissive right so part of the training and part of a lot of the fun if you will uh of flying that airplane was was doing those maneuvers in that big of an airplane
0: yeah that's crazy Um,
1: yeah so uh i mean the my memories of doing assault landings in a c-17 are just memories that i'll have for my whole life you know like the um you know when you're doing an assault landing on a c-17 right so let let me just talk numbers right so c-17 fully loaded five hundred eighty-five
0: thousand pounds is that all
1: it's a lot of, yeah, yeah, right, right. It's quite the lift. Um, when you're doing an assault landing, right, the minimum required is a four thousand foot strip. That, I, if I remember correctly, I think it's four thousand by seventy five feet wide. Right. That sounds like a lot. Trust me, it is not. <laughs> Trust me, it is not because you know, um, you know, how long is a mile?
0: Right. I'm doing public math right now. It's 5,000 oh, okay. something. I can't ever remember. Yeah. I mean, I love the Imperial so, system, but a mile is a, a weird measurement.
1: Right. right, right. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, but I mean, you're talking about landing, um, a lot of, um, a lot of airplane within less than a mile. Um, and you're doing it under fire and you're doing it, um, you know, in a combat zone. And so, Doing assault landings in the C seventeen was just uh, exhilarating because basically, I mean, you are just you are just planting this aircraft yeah. into the ground, and and they in the way that they teach it is, hey, listen, like when you, the moment the wheels touch the ground, uh, you are full up hip thrusting all of your weight into the brakes, and you're simultaneously throwing the throttles back into to idle idle reverse, just to I mean, you're using every ounce of physics that you can to stop the airplane, yeah. and I'll never forget the experience of doing an assault landing in a C seventeen. Right, just I mean, if if you're not locking out your seatbelt, you know, every single time you're doing it wrong. Yeah, you know, like I, I just remember instructors, you know, like you know like you think you're doing it right and then all of a sudden you just feel the brakes like depress even more and you're like i didn't know they could go that far and the instructors <laughs> looking over you going dude you're not doing enough we're gonna die you know <laughs> so uh,
0: that's awesome
1: yeah so man it was just a lot of fun so um, and i also uh not to interject but just i also got to do some airdrop stuff as well um mm-hmm. so I, I was airdrop qualified in the c17 um which that is just a whole another chapter of awesomeness, you know, of being able to sling, you know, some something out the back, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's a a Humvee or a howitzer or, you know, or a hundred paratroopers going out the doors, you know, that was just, that was just a
0: really cool experience. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so three years in the C-17, what was next?
1: Yeah. So then, um, if I don't know how much of this you caught in the news, this is pre-COVID, so around the 2017, 2018 timeframe, there was there was big news of, of, of a pilot shortage. And so, and uh, really, this really shouldn't surprise anybody because for um, a long time, the Air Force has just kind of mismanaged personnel a little bit, um, and quite frankly, um, we were also in Afghanistan for almost 20 years at that point, right? So people are just tired. Yeah. You know. They're just they're just tired. They're they're tired of being gone all the time. They're tired of being in the Middle East. They're tired of, you know, and and not only that too, but the airlines are hiring, right? So they're like, well, hey, I you know, I can leave the Air Force and not have to worry about being deployed and move my family. I can get hired with Delta and make three hundred plus a year, you know, and sit at home half the month. You know, like that sounds like a good deal to me. And so um, the Air Force started to experience this mass exodus of pilots who were just speaking with their feet and they were leaving. Uh, and quite frankly, I was I was going to be one of them. Uh, I was thinking about leaving. I was kind of starting to, you know, build my resume, like actually write it down, you know, send it to professional companies to review it for application. Uh, and so I got the call from uh, from my buddy who manages. My assignment, he's like, hey, dude, um, we're 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 plussing up at the flight school, you know, like we got to produce more pilots. So like people are leaving faster than we can make them, you know, like we gotta. He's like, he's like, are you are you interested in going back to the flight school? And I was like, yeah. So um, my next assignment after after Charleston, as I actually went back to Mississippi and I went back to the flight school again, and so but this time I was teaching in a 6 not a T one and so I got to experience um, really full circle. Flight school. Um, I to say how, so how I many was, people
0: go through it three times. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um,
1: and uh, yeah, so anyway, so I went back to the flight school, and uh, and that was my my third assignment. Um, yeah, because I had flight school for a long time. And uh, but man, I, the, the the when I went back, uh, and at this point I just promoted to a major, right? So I, at this point I had made major and I promoted. Uh, and so I was now one of the old guys, uh, if you will. And so I went back to the flight school as like an old guy, but I, like I, I I had my fate patch, right? So like I, I don't have it with me. I should have brought it with me so I could show you. um But I was still part of the fate mafia, right? And so like we, um you know, for the guys who come back, there's we make a special patch. It's like the 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 patch and then like there's like a, a little emblem at the top that says old school, like old school fate mafia, right? Because uh, we've been there before, yeah. and so um you know, because the fates wear that patch with a with a it's like a badge of honor, yeah. you know. Uh, And when they see, when they see an old school Fate Mafia patch, they're like, dude, respect. (laughs) They're like, dude, you came back? And I'm like, yeah, I did. And um, anyway, so yeah, I came back and dude, it was just, uh, you know, know, and then COVID happened, you know? And so, um, you know, I don't want to get too personal, but 2019, right? So people talk about how bad 2020 was, right? With, With COVID, you know, just like lockdowns and like you know people losing their minds you know not be able to you know uh to do things and I understand that yeah. and I get that right. Yeah we like uh, we, we
0: heard about some of that stuff down in Florida Sound, sounded odd to us but Oh you're talking about COVID Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. we we heard there were some <laughs> issues some other places but <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure for sure um
1: so my wife and I uh we were at the time we had one daughter um, and uh we were we were trying to have a second and, um, and do we just went through a, just a barrage of frustrations in 2019? We had three consecutive miscarriages. Ugh. And so we, you know, because the plan was right, we're gonna have our second kid, right? We're gonna have healthcare coverage, everything's gonna be fine, right? And then from there, I can successfully make that leap of faith from active duty to the airlines, right? well when you have three miscarriages in a row that that put, that that moves your timeline to the right yeah. significantly and so <clears throat> we had found out in december of 19 that um that we were expecting again right and but we were kind of just like well whatever like at this point i'm just so numb to this situation you know i'm like i'm like whatever you know like i've just gone through you know three in a row like what are the chances that this one makes yeah. it you know what i mean
0: yeah. And, well, um, that's, that's part of the suck. I mean, that's like going through the, the miscarriage, uh, you know, is, is sad enough and hard enough. But the thing you don't account for is like what it steals from you is like the follow on pregnancy, right? Like
1: you're oh, always, dude, yeah. you're
0: always hedging the hope and the excitement.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? Like y- you want to be excited, but you're like, oh, well, well. You know? Well, we'll see. Yeah,
0: somewhere in your head, maybe it's a, maybe it's a guy thing. I, I don't know. You know, I, I, it's it's safe to assume the experience is is probably similar on both yeah. sides. But somewhere in your head, you're like, yeah, I'm excited, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah.
1: Um, so I want to hurry up and get done talking about me, so we can talk about the movie. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, we found out we were going to have a successful pregnancy, and so. Uh, well you know i'm looking at a timeline going well you know like i plan to get out of the service at this time and if the baby's due in august right like i don't know if we're gonna have health care coverage and i was like you know what i was like why don't we and this is before covid blew the world up yeah right so this is before like things just went sideways um you know i was like i was like hey listen i was like let's let's move our timeline one year to the right you know i was like i want to make sure that everything's everything's good I mean, for your health, right? For, for our health. Um, and that we've got, we've got good coverage, right? I want to make sure we're in a good spot to do this, right? Like I, I think, I think it would be a very, uh, unwise decision to make this jump, you know, without, without knowing that, you know, I'm going to be able to pay the bills. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, so anyways, I pulled my paperwork, um, and, Next thing I know, like two weeks later, COVID blows the world up. Right. And all of those jobs that were on the outside, gone, evaporated, evaporated, eviscerated overnight. Um, and, and I had a, I had some, I had some friends who really, um, who really were just, it was just bad timing, yeah, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, anyways, so, uh, we stayed on active duty. Well then simultaneously, right. Um, I got picked up, I got nominated to go to school, um, which for career progression is a really big deal. Yeah. Um, so I got picked up to go to what we call um, Air Command and Staff College, ACSC, uh, which is here where I am now at the, in Montgomery, Alabama. And so um, getting picked up to go to school was a big deal because it puts you in this very um, small percentile of folks that the Air Force decides to invest in more in um, because – it's an indicator that you're going to be future leadership right um, so all good things right and so it just really worked out for the best um, I went to school here for a year so it's a master's degree um, in, in military science and operational art is what it's called um, it's an accredited degree it's pretty it's pretty sweet um, and uh, what well, we learn all sorts of basically you transition from being an officer to an academic you know um, and then you have to retransition back to being an officer because you got to go back to you to go do the fight um, but, uh, it was awesome to come here and to learn, uh, and kind of just have the opportunity to kind of just mentally grow, yeah. you know, uh, and to be and mentally be challenged, you know, on some, on some things, you know, a lot of things, um, and anyway, so, but my school assignment here is unique because it was a two-year gig. Um, the two-year gig of it was one year school. And then the second year you're going to be, you're going to teach at the school. So here I am again, full circle, right? Yeah going to school and now I'm teaching out of school. I'm like, Oh, I'm starting to notice a pattern with, you know, with what I think God's doing with my life right now. And so, Uh (laughs) so anyways, um, so here I am. So actually I just finished teaching at school. Um, and I am preparing to go on, to go do, uh, my staff assignment. And so I'm actually in the middle of a move right now. You can't see it. My house is almost in boxes. Um, we're actually rolling out of town on Saturday. Um, and we're heading up to um, Scott Air Force Base, which is just outside of St. Louis. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to be going to Air Mobility Command. So um, I'll be work back in mobility, but I'm going to be in what they call the AMCA 35 And so uh, the 3-5 aspect, 3 is op- three is the code for our operations, and 5 is the code for strategy. And so essentially what my job will be is uh, I'm going to be a, a lead regional planner for how we employ air mobility. Um, uh, for the combatant commanders, essentially. So essentially, so I'm going to get assigned a region. So, you know, Central Command, South Command. Uh, I won't do NORAD. I don't think, I won't, not NORAD, I won't do North Command, but like maybe Indo-PACOM uh, or UCOM. I might get assigned a region and and I will be the, the head minion, if you will, of developing um, how we do air mobility ops in that region um, for not only... Operational level of war, but how that nests within to the national strategic policies that we have. Um, so it'll be exciting, exhilarating. Uh, it'll be challenging. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. So, um, but I won't be flying airplanes. And so people keep asking me, "Like, man, do you miss it?" And I'm like, "Huh, I'm like I do, but I don't, right?" Because yeah. um, flying airplanes is great. Don't get me wrong, right? There's there's no better job in the air force than flying airplanes. But. Um, you know, there's just an added level of stress when you're um, when you're at the phase that I'm at right now, where you're you're moving along with your career and having to maintain uh, an aircraft qualification while simultaneously having to do staff work and leadership positions. Dude, that that can really take its toll. You know, and so yeah. uh, I, well, I welcome I welcome this phase of life where I'm like I don't have to worry about maintaining a flight qual. I'm like, oh my god, what's cool? I was, that that yeah. was gonna later. That was
0: going to be my question. Like obviously, in the description, this isn't a day in day out flying gig, but is like z- zero airtime. It's not like somebody somewhere is making sure you get enough time in the air to maintain like your. I, I mean, this is probably movie jargon, but flight ready status. Like that's that's nobody's. That's not your gig anymore. We we pay other people for that.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, and what's interesting uh, is, you know, the job that I'm going to go do right now, you know, I'm going to go do a job where, you know, I'm putting together the plan for, you know, for the dudes who, who were me, you know, six, seven years ago to go execute that plan, you know? So the impetus on, on the accuracy and the level of detail that I put into these plans is, is important, right? Because somebody on the other side of that is going to get handed this plan. They're going to go, Hey, go do, you know? And so that plan better be, rock solid because if not you know you're putting people in danger so um so that's kind of the other side of it where i where i see and i go oh okay you know like all those things i used to gripe and complain about you know like why are we doing it this way yeah. you know like i'm gonna be like i'm gonna be the guy you know writing the plan to be like hey dummy you know yeah we need you we need you to do this for this reason
0: hey that's so that, that's legit and uh uh how much longer are you going to be a major what's that looking like
1: yeah so i find out about lieutenant colonel uh any day right now actually so the month of june is when i should find out um bizarre man just bizarre i mean
0: you're the fact that you're youngish for that yes uh like you're not uh, you're not the average age somebody makes lieutenant commander i would assume
2: what? Or is that just me wanting to feel like I'm
0: like, I I probably just want to feel like I'm young in my head. And so if you're still ahead of schedule, then I'm not as old as I am.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, you're not wrong and you're not right. Um, So the air force tends to promote uh, younger um, versus the other services. So soldiers, sailors, Marines uh, will promote to lieutenant colonel later in their career, probably closer to like the 17, 18 year mark. Um, And then from there, you know, they either plateau or they accelerate rapidly. Um, and the Air Force tends to accelerate a little quicker where, you know, I'm at the 13-year point going on 14 in uh, August or November. I got to look, whatever whatever date it is. But anyways, um, it'll be 14 this year, and uh, and I'll pin on at the 15-year mark. For like four, some Sometime between 14 and 15 is when I'll pin on. And that is that is very common in the Air Force, right? But in, in, in you know, paired against the other services, it's it's early.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, my wife's uh, grandpa, on her dad's <clears throat> side, um, we we called him the Colonel, but he uh, he was retired from the Air Force as a lieutenant colonel. He uh, was he served active duty through three wars. So he was enlisted in the Navy during World War II. And then uh, the story gets muddy for me on how he, he ended up. I know he went to Penn State. I can't remember how he ended up getting his commission, but he went, he went back in and, and served out the rest of his career in the Air Force. Um, much of, of what he did, he didn't tell anybody in the family about for a long time. A lot of his service was, was or if not all, uh, all of it, was stateside uh, through uh, Korea and Vietnam, uh, but he, he, he worked in, in labs. He did, uh, we'll say biomedical work and he wouldn't tell sure. anybody about yeah. it for a long time. And, yeah. uh, you know, after, after we got married, there was a, a point he kind of handed me a book. I want to say the title of that book was, is maybe Lab 251. I'll look it up while I talk. But, uh, so, he, uh, again, uh, he, I mean, he didn't tell his wife for a long time the stuff he worked on anything. So he handed me this book. I, I think it was Lab 251. And it's uh, it's about this work that was done at this lab uh, up in or just outside of New York. And uh, was it Lab 251? Maybe Lab 257. But uh, part of this book is is about how, uh, uh, maybe how uh, Lyme disease came about and uh, uh yeah lab, oh, yeah. lab, lab yeah. 257 but so this is this is about all this chemical warfare work that w- was being done uh in this book and he says everybody always wants to know what i did read this book this is what i did <laughs> like he's not i i think it was more categorically uh than like specifically i worked at this lab where i worked on these things but it was like you want a glimpse at what i worked on here's an idea of, of what I right. did while I was in super right. cool dude. Right? right. So, I mean, he was, you know, five foot something. I mean, I, I in my head, I always kind of thought of him. He, he was much more lovable than this, but like a cotton from King of the Hill, Hank's dad, like, uh, you know, <laughs> and, uh, he, you know, he didn't have this like sharp military mannerism to him, certainly not at the point in his life that, that I, that I knew him and uh, you know he, he passed a few years ago unfortunately but uh, i say unfortunately uh, you know unfortunate for us fortunate for him is his wife preceded him they were married for some crazy amount of years 60 plus or something like that after she passed every time we talked to him he'd still say he talked to her every night so like i said it's sad for us that he passed but uh, i think right. he was uh, happy to see her again so um but there was there was one time he he went to uh, what's the what's the bigger air force base that's that's down here where i'm at
1: uh, it's not, okay. It's so not you're, far you're from Central you're Orlando, Florida, right? But
0: yeah. 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 So,
1: uh, you've got McDill Air Force Base, which is colossal yeah. in Tampa. Um, I would, I would venture to say that you're talking, that you're probably talking about McDill, which is in Tampa. Uh, yeah, that might've been McDill. Um,
0: I had to drive him he, somewhere. I had to drive him to one of the bases to get his prescriptions. That's just where he got his meds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't forget that, uh, Orlando International used to be a McCoy Airfield. Yeah. Uh, which is why MCO is the identifier for Orlando. It's it's McCoy Airfield. It's an old SAC base, yeah. right? You know, had old, you had you had nukes, <laughs> you know, like down in Orlando, uh, or a nuke ca- nuke capability. Um, you got Patrick Air Force Base out in Cocoa, um, yeah. but they're uh, they're affiliated with the with the space mission. Yeah, it was know, obviously. it was
0: big, big. I think it was probably McDell. So. Uh, it was, yeah. stuff was going, uh, some, was actually his wife, his, uh, his wife, Jade's grandma was, was really ill at the time, but he needed to go and get his meds. It's not like, it's not like you can go to CVS and pick them up for him, right? Like he's got to go to the base oh, to hit yeah. the pharmacy on base to pick them up. So we're going through the guard gate and, uh, you know, he's got to hand over his military ID and the, you know, the second he does, the guard glances at it, snaps to attention, fires off a salute, hands it back yeah. and says, uh, you know, have a great day, Colonel. He you know, he takes his ID back and says thank you. And so I slowly start to pull away and uh I said, Man, you really gotta miss that, huh? And he goes, Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> just the the only time I you like we you know, we refer to him as the colonel, everybody respected his service, but it's like you just kind of saw this glimpse as he, you know, saluted this kid back. Uh, you know, oh, of yeah. of yeah. for real the colonel. So that's that's my lieutenant colonel experience. Oh, uh, yeah, there. that's cool. And
1: yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It is cool, man. I mean, I, 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 I know the feeling, um, and I know the feel like not, I mean, personally, cause I go through the gate every day, but, um, I always find it, uh, I always find it personally entertaining, uh, when other people are with me in the car, you know, and I go through the gate, you know, especially my wife and kids, uh, or like if my parents or my in-laws are with me, you know, and, uh, you know, they pop to and they, they rack off a salute, you know, and, uh, and I drive to the gate, there's always like, oh man, that, man, that, that kid's by surprise every yeah. single time, you know, like, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a cool experience.
0: Now that same mutual friend I mentioned earlier, I'll, I'll tell this story on his behalf real quick since he won't come on the podcast and share it. <laughs> so while he was going, yeah, he okay. went, he decided to go through med school later. He's the smartest person I know in the whole entire world, bar none. I mean, there's some other people who are close, but he's the smartest person I know and decided in like his mid thirties, ah, I'm just going to go ahead and go knock out med school. Like I'm, I'm over what I'm doing. So I'm going to go do that instead. So okay. knocks out a free prereqs that he's missing, uh, you know, and gets himself into med school. So realizes while he's at med school that he can, and I always mix this up. I should pay better attention. I've been friends with them for, you know, over 20 years. Can't remember if he's a reservist or if he's national guard, whatever, either way, it's army. And so he figures out that if he, uh, if he goes reserve or national guard, that they'll cut him a decent size check every month while he's in med school. And then he's, uh-huh. he's still yeah. not deployable until like well after he's done, you know, until he's done with his residency and stuff. So it's like kind of takes the financial burden off a little bit while he's going through med school with a wife and two kids and, and all that stuff. And uh, so, so he does it, you know, no factor. And fully recognize it's funny because here he is either guard or reservist and, you know, deep into his 30s. He's still putting in for every cool guy school he possibly can. He regularly gets <laughs> laughed at. Sometimes they let him do it. Uh, hence him being a flight surgeon now. And, uh, which we all pictured when he told us, our little circle of friends were like, Oh sweet. So you're on like life flight stuff, stuff like that. He's like, no man. He's just like, I, I just check out the pilots. <laughs> it's like, I just, I just make sure they're all fit to fly. That's, it sounds cooler than it is. So he's like, but I get to hang out with some cool people when I do that. But so he was talking about one point while he's either doing his weekend or doing his two weeks or whatever he's doing uh, for, for duty. And he's like crossing some open area on base just, and again, like he fully recognizes He's like, I'm not a real soldier. I don't claim to be a real soldier. This like, I've got a uniform. I've got a rank. I'm, you know, he's, (laughs) he understands what he is and what his role in the military is and that they only care about him because of his ability to fix people up. (laughs) And so, but he's just crossing some open area in the zone. I don't know what his rank is at that point. Um, I, I can't remember how long he'd been in. So I'm not going to share the ranks because I'll botch it anyways. And it's immaterial, but he's just in his phone crossing, not paying attention. And, uh, you know, some, some, uh, officer with the chip on her shoulder who outranks him happens to be crossing at the same time. Oh yeah. It, you, like he just didn't recognize her existence period. And she <sighs> like yells at him, like snaps him out instantly and just rips him up one side and down the other. Just one of those people, like inside or outside the military, we've all worked with or for these people that just have to constantly remind you what their title is, what their authority is or whatever, which really is probably an indicator that you might be in charge, but you're probably not the leader if you've got to lean on your title all the time. And uh, I mean, just laid into him good. And I'm just sad that there's not video, that I couldn't be there to see it happen and that there's no video. So I enjoy his telling of it uh but uh,
1: yeah i'm sure- i'm sure his recollection is is much more <laughs> colorful than than you are than you are describing oh, that, i uh, love
0: that story so much oh, man. yeah so but so uh top Gun right. Played this, yeah, play this, play this major role in your life. We're almost yep. two hours deep in the podcast. I don't care. This is fun. If you got time, we're trucking on. I'm not even going to worry about I what got time. Not even, you're in a central time zone. I'm not even going to worry about what time it is here. Uh, so here it played this pivotal role in your life. I was a big fan. Can still quote the whole movie. Uh, sure. So it comes out. They're going to make a sequel, right? Sounds like a bad idea from the jump to me. But I'm like, let's, let's not mess with this one let's not mess. So then COVID hits and it gets delayed and delayed and delayed. So yeah. now, like I would say probably more leaked about it. Like we knew more about this movie going in than I think maybe we otherwise would have. Sure. And it just keeps looking more and more and more legit. And like you're seeing, you know, they finally dropped the trailer and I'm watching, and I'm going, there's no way, like that's got that's gotta be CGI. Like there's no way the Navy let them fly a jet an F-18 that close to the deck for a movie, for a freaking movie. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. They let them, they let them do all kinds of stuff. I saw this stat and this was shocking to me. And it's probably no surprise uh, to you at all that they, they paid the the Navy something like $12,000 per hour for the use of those F-18s. Yeah. You know,
1: um, what may surprise you is that is, Basically, how much it costs to operate that airplane yeah. per hour?
0: Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's not. <laughs> well, listen, uh, the Navy got their their value out of this movie. I mean, they oh, could sure. they could have let them use the jets for free because. uh Well, we've we've both seen it at this point, and 100 full blown spoiler alerts from here on out. We're talking about it all. If you don't want to know what happens in Top Gun: Maverick, you've had a couple of weeks. Pause. Go see it. Come. Come back to this. So right, you know. Right. It caveats, do it. It caveats here. You're a military av- aviator, not a not a yep. fighter pilot, not a not a not a naval aviator. You haven't flown F-18s. Yep. Um, you. I mean, you may or may not have flown some top secret you know, Mach 10 stealth jets that you can't tell us about. We'll just leave that unknown. Um, you know, but still obviously have a much better take or more informed on take than this, than the vast mm-hmm. majority of people who are going to see this movie. So sure, uh, I yeah. saw it before you, you were kind of, we were kind of texting. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to like ruin your outlook. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and you, sure. And you're yeah. like, Dude, I can handle it. And uh, our, our take was essentially the same though, coming from different levels of information uh, that it was freaking fantastic. I mean, exceeded for yeah. me. I'll say exceeded all expectations.
1: Yeah. So um, yeah. So that was the rub, right? So the first time I, I Top Gun one, right? You're a young kid. At least I was a young kid. You were young too, um, and uh, you don't really know any different, right? You're like, man, this just this just awesome, right? Um, and I, it kind of had some reservations when I heard that the, they're making a second movie. Um, just because you know, more often than not, sequels turn out to be not good sequels. And um, you know, and just like you, the more that kind of started coming out, I was like, all right, it's gonna be legit. You know, gonna be legit. I had heard some rumors, you know, uh, within the service anyways, of you know, like what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, my God, the rumor, rumors are rumors, right? Like, I mean, they are what they are. Um, but I kept hearing enough of them where I was like, okay, that actually sounds pretty legit. Um, and uh and yeah, so once I saw some of the footage, uh and some of those rumors turned out to be true, you know, about Tom Cruise not agreeing to do the movie unless it was like unless it was, unless it was real footage. Yeah. Um and uh I don't mean, know that too. I was like, okay, all right, it's gonna be good. And um and saw the movie, loved it, right? Uh for a lot of reasons. One, um, you know, it, it's been a while since I've seen the movie where I kinda got the feels, you know. Uh-huh. Um and I got the feels for different reasons, right? I got the feels for, you know, for like nostalgia, right? Um, I got the feels because of just the the, the cinematography and just the the incredible job they did with, with with documenting what was happening and actually having it be real, um, you know. And I also got the feels too because of, I, I know what this movie is going to do for this generation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know it's kind of not not too different than what it did for my generation yeah and you, you're you're gonna see um now to what magnitude we don't know yet but like you're gonna see an increase in, in recruiting
2: you know yeah.
1: um you know and, and that's that's why you know the services are will will do stuff like this right it's it's free advertising man it's yeah. just like hey like we need you know we're an all-volunteer force right come volunteer to come be with us and like and we'll make yeah, and they and they do stuff like this to, to promote that now um, on the other side of that right as a military aviator uh, and especially in the job I'm gonna go do being a, a plans and strategist right I'm looking at this plan going uh, it's believable enough to you know it's it's a believable enough plan that okay I can see that happening right but when I, as a planner and as a strategist, I look at it and go, okay, your plan as depicted in this movie, right. And, and I want to be very careful. Like I'm not, I'm not dragging this through the mud. Right. Because it's really awesome what they did in the movie. Don't get me wrong. Um, But there are a lot of better ways to do that mission. (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of better ways and a lot of safer ways to do that. Yeah. Um, And, um, but I understand why they chose what they did. Um, and it makes for good, makes for good movies. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and for that, I I give it, I give it a lot of praise, you know, because, uh, it's just really cool what they did. Um, but it's funny. I I played around in golf the other day with a buddy of mine, uh, who, he and I had the same conversation. We're like, man, you could just, there's so many different things you could do with that mission, you know, that like you could just like, you could, you could, you could buy down all the risk associated with that mission, you know? Um, and uh, and we are on full spoiler alert, right? I, I can I can talk about Absolutely. this. Is
0: that okay? Well, let me let me pause so, real quick because I I do need to handle some some Solid Seven podcast business here because okay. I have I have put off something that we always do. I don't want the fans to think I'm slacking. I don't want them to think I forgot. The Solid Seven podcast is and always has been, fueled by Jocko Go. Now, normally we lead right up front with cracking open a Jocko Go. And normally I do what I can to make sure my guest has a Jocko Go as well. Now, much like last week we were on a bit of a truncated schedule with your move and stuff, wasn't able to work my Jocko Go magic for you. But I am fully prepared here in studio uh, to be fueled. Up. But it just seemed only right, knowing we were going to talk Top Gun, to wait till this moment in the podcast and crack open an Afterburner Orange Jocko Go Named for Top Gun uh, graduate and instructor himself, Dave Chip Burke. And so, cheers to you, sir. Cheers to our military aviators and cheers to Top Gun. Right. All right. So, yeah, full, full spoiler mode. And, and yeah, to, to speak yeah. to the nostalgia, right? Like, this is a legit old school, rah rah, <sighs> America is great summer blockbuster.
2: It is. The open is it a is.
0: shot for shot recreation. Of the first one, the opening sequence is shot for shot recreation, modern aircraft, but it's, it's the same sequence. It's awesome. So they've got you right from the jump.
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, concur. Uh, absolutely. I just remember sitting in the theater and, uh, and, and listen for those listening and I don't need to say this to you, Kale, but, but if you're going to see this movie and you don't see it in IMAX, you're doing it wrong. Right. Um, This movie was designed uh, and formatted for the big screen, right? So
0: here's the problem though caveat as a grumpy old man, I looked at IMAX theaters and those tickets, those theaters were full. And the problem with movie theaters is and always will be people. So I opted for <laughs> smaller screen, less people. I will see it again in another week or two when the buzz has died sure. down and I can go sit in an IMAX theater largely by mm-hmm. myself.
1: Sure. And, and um, the other thing is, too, is that when you're in a smaller town like Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> uh, going to the IMAX during the first
0: couple of weeks is is, is very doable. Yeah, uh, because well, it's nice that, that the one screen they have is IMAX. So at least <laughs>
1: this is true. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> This is very true. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, uh, back to the movie. Right. Um, I just remember the opening scenes, right. And just the, the music and the, the screen by the, 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 just second by second, basically just parallel with the original. I just sat there and I was like, "Oh, is this is going to be so good. Yes. And, uh, and it, and it was, it really was. It, um, you know, and I felt like the movie um, did an excellent job of um, overtly, you know, uh, pulling from the first movie. Um, but it was it was also like the real subtle lines, you know, like they're like occasionally they would drop in like a line. You're like, oh, I didn't catch it at first. Yeah. But like yeah. that's a throwback to the original. Um, I, I really found those moments to be. To be priceless. Yeah. Well, so. and,
0: and it is like, it's not a shot for shot remake, but it definitely you know it's like if uh, if somebody's following a recipe but they they're not measuring real closely right like it's it's not the oh, same yeah. it's not the yeah. same movie very much follows the same storyline though but not in a way that makes it that makes you hate it like it it feels it's like they they found the little what little room there was for improvement in the first one I mean accepting for the fact that this is a mid 80s movie and you know we're we're in the 20s now right so things are different. I get that parts of it don't hold up but when it was released, fantastic movie and largely holds up, but it's just, they found those little spaces and, and made it that much better. And you know, the aerial footage is really where it's like just leaps and bounds. Like there's just no substitute oh, yeah. for what they, for what they did this time. Part of what I appreciate it on, cause we, we regularly, um, you know, I, I don't know how much you've caught this. We just regularly openly hate on China here on the solid seven podcast. And I think they deserve it. I think they've earned that always specified the government, not the people. Not the people. Um, right. Well, the people in the government, but still. Uh, and so like I was hacked because a lot of Hollywood's funding now comes from China and China's a massive market for them once the movies are released. And so there was reporting early on when this was coming out that uh, Maverick's old jacket was going to appear in the movie, but without the Taiwanese and Japanese flags on it. And I'm like, well, good luck getting my money. And then as it got closer and I saw more and more footage, I'm like forget you principals, I'm going to go see this movie. And you know what? It's okay, because the jacket actually makes its appearance very early in the movie, and the Japanese and Taiwanese flags are both on the back of that jacket. I don't know how or when that change got made. I don't think the movie has a release date still yet in China, and I bet that's related. That's a gutsy move from them, because there was big financial backing from China for this movie.
1: Yeah, you know, um, and, and I would, I would submit that Quite frankly, companies, you know, I think Sony here is, is, is like an unexpected hero, you know, like what they did, uh, with, the, what was it? The Spider-Man homecoming. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, where there was, um, a push from the CCP about, you know, like, Hey, you, you, we, you need to do this with like, I think it was one of the scenes with like the statue of Liberty or mm-hmm. something. And Sony was like, mm, okay, no yeah. pound sand we're doing this anyways. Right.
0: Um, well, and, and um, hopefully there's some lessons here because you look how big that movie was. And now you yeah. look like uh top gun. Like this is not, this is not a woke movie. This is, this is a rah, rah pro like America's awesome. Like this is an old school action movie and it's, they're printing money. They're printing money. So hopefully somebody in Hollywood's paying attention. That's like, no, we, we don't have to cave to the loudest voices all the time. And there's money to be made even when you don't. We'll see.
1: Couldn't, we'll see. Yeah. couldn't say it better. I mean, like, I mean, you saw, you saw this with a, with Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, what happens when you make a movie that's just a good movie, uh-huh. right? And you're not pushing, uh, whatever it is or ideology you're pushing right wrong right wrong or different left or right whatever when when you just make a good movie right and you're not just you know ambiguously or overtly you know trying to slip in an agenda yeah you know it's just um you see that there's a story to be had here that that the movies that don't do that tend to be
0: successful very successful um you know i think that these two movies are our examples of that so start of the movie, Maverick's. Uh, he's an older pilot now. Somehow, still only a captain, and uh, but he's a, he's a, yes. he's a test pilot. So uh,
1: yeah, I need to interject though. So this is where I think the movie's a little misleading uh, because uh, when you say captain in the United States Navy, what you mean is colonel right. in United States Army or United States air force. And so I, that was one of the, one of the things in the movie where I kept, I was like, ah, you're kind of being misleading. Right. Um, because a Navy captain is a, is, is a BFD is a, is a big effing deal. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you said, they're like, you're only a captain. And I'm like, yeah, but captains are still big deals, <laughs> I man. Right, you know? right, like, right. Those, those are still really important people. Um, you know, like if he was still a Lieutenant, right. Which is the grade of, of, of O three, which is the equivalent of an air force captain um which is what he was in the first movie um yeah sure okay yeah you can you can throw shade at him yeah right but you keep calling him captain but that's still a big deal yeah <laughs> you know like so they're like you're only a captain you've been here for 30 years and you're only a captain and i'm like uh well you know like 30 euros six i'm like that's not that unbelievable yeah. you know in my, no, and like my re- opinion.
0: retiring as a captain or a colonel it'll still get you a new a gig on the news agency so you can still comment on some things
1: It does, yeah, absolutely. So, so, anyways, yeah. So he's flying this experimental jet. Yeah, so he's an experimental pilot doing this program, right? Mach nine is the, the benchmark that they're supposed to do, right? And they find out like they're about to get cut. Yeah. So he's got to go. So he's got to go to Mach ten, right? Um, And uh, you know, and he doesn't. Right. And so now,
0: I, I took, again, I, I don't have the technical understanding of these things that you do. I, I was, I was willing to suspend some, some, or you know, to give them some leeway on that. But when they showed that thing now, Hey, this jet is legit. And when I say it's, it's legit, it's not just that this looks movie cool. And it, and it does, it actually looked to me like it took some cues from the YF 23, which was a freaking dope jet. Like, make no mistake, the jet that lost out to the F-22 was no slacker. Um, but uh, so in, in the aftermath, is there's more behind the scenes and more information coming out. A, uh, engineers from Lockheed Skunk Works helped them work on, on the way that plane was going to look. And it was right. convincing enough that, that at least as it's reported, like, China moved some satellites around to get a, a look at this thing sitting at wherever they had it sitting, which I think is freaking hilarious.
2: Right.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. And so this is, this is back to the point that I made before is that there, there are elements of this movie that are believable enough, um, that, that provide the, um, the excitement, right. Where yeah. like, it's, it you're like, you're like, well, I mean, yeah, this looks like the YF 23, uh, which like you said, was no slouch and it wasn't. Um, and, uh, And it does this thing that, oh, by the way, you know, is oddly similar to what they're testing with some of the, these, some of these, um, these pilotless aircraft, right. You know, pressing these speed limits, you know.
0: I mean, uh, I I guess we'll, we'll touch on, on fifth generation fighters here some because of, of the movie, but I I mean, is it true at this point that really the, the limiting factor in any airframe is, is the pilot as far as maneuverability? yeah it is
1: it is right so the the physiological performance required uh for a human being to operate the airplane um is um how do i say this essentially the the structure of the airframe right is more capable than the human flying it right so um you know the f twenty two the f thirty five i mean heck i mean even airframes like the f sixteen and the f fifteen right they can they can pull more g's right that is they can they can pull more gravitational forces than the human body will allow it to do right the structure of the airframe will allow them to do that yeah but the limiting factor is the human being in the cockpit that you know uh will suffer the the effects of of aerodynamic forces yeah. right so um it, that is a that is a true statement right and so the the pilot right the operator inside uh, an F-22 or an F-35 or in any fifth-gen airplane, right, is the limiting factor. Yeah, And so, um, but it, you know, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, right, it it, it also is the, the thing that, you know, uh, delineates, you know, really the morality of war, right? And so when we talk about future warfare, right, and, and questions of morality that we have to grapple with of, you know, is it moral, right? Yeah, and this is going to be a slight divergence in the movie but like but the morality of using drones for warfare versus humans for warfare right like we 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 have as a civilization right and as a species we have moved on from you know fighting with each other with fists right that still happens right but like but we're talking like warfare right like conventional warfare um you know where are the moral and ethical lines right how do those change you know when we're using drones to kill each other Yeah right um and so anyways um, having the pilot having the pilot in the aircraft still satisfies some of those um well i I
0: think you you know you've got there's a you know a delineation even in that that discussion though between you know um something that's you know a glorified rc plane and something that's autonomous right and i think we're probably farther away from autonomous than than most people think right like if if Tesla can't get the the Model S truly driving itself yet. I, I'm not super worried about advanced autonomous fighters just yet. It's a little more complicated uh, than navigating right. across town. Um, but that is a little bit of a debate that's introduced early on in the movie, right? It's it's you know, oh Maverick, you're like the general that wants to shut down this test program. Thinks things are headed towards pilotless aircraft, anyways, right? So that's you know, Maverick, you're a relic. We don't even we don't need this jet because that's not the future of you know, air dominance anyways, right? And so, uh, you know, Maverick being Maverick, he pushes this thing to Mach 10. How how fast is that, right? Like what's the Mach, that, that would be 10 times the speed of sound, right? That's what Mach is. Yep, that's right. And so it, it's, that's somewhere north of 2,000 miles an hour is Mach 1, right? I
1: don't know. i got to get a, a calculator out to figure this out.
0: So we've, <laughs> if, if, I, if I'm right, so you correct me. You, you do your math, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the speed of sound is somewhere north of 2,000 miles per hour. So were Maverick to actually fly Mach 10 and above, that would put him over 20,000 miles an hour.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, miles per hour. Here we go. Hold on. According to Google, that is the first thing that pops up. Hold on. What is this here?
2: Uh, Okay. So on the spot here. Yeah.
0: Anyways, Wikipedia came up. it's, It's so it's lower than I thought. Wikipedia came up and said it's 740 miles per hour. And Wikipedia is never wrong.
1: Okay. All right. Well, here we go. Uh, what we're looking at, you know, I mean, this is straight math, right? But Mach ten, uh, it says is seven thousand four hundred and eleven miles per hour.
0: Okay, so it's not as fast. I mean, it's impressive. Don't get me wrong, but it's uh, it's not as fast as I was as I was thinking.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's nothing to shake a stick at. No,
0: because <laughs> I was thinking it was going to be because because uh, uh, orbital speed. Like, to maintain orbit at 17,500, it's, it's 23,000 kilometers per hour. It's around 17,500 miles per hour. So I was thinking he was traveling faster than orbital speed, which is it's ludicrous. Like, in the actual space ball sense, ludicrous. Uh, but still, pretty fast. So I, I took a little issue. Uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong in this, but they, they show him, like, banking in that jet at that speed. Like, not hard, like an arc, but I'm like... <sighs> Dude, you're going to be lucky if you can hold together flying in a straight line at that speed. What was the what was the yeah. top end on the SR-71? Uh,
1: I I don't know. Actually, have they fully declassified the top end speed of that? I don't know if they, if they fully declassified
0: um, top speed. It's criminal that that plane doesn't still fly. Yeah. Or so they'd have us believe. The fact that we're still flying U2s. And we're not flying SR seventy ones makes me angry as and my inner child is very mad at that.
1: Yeah. I mean it says I don't know, this is open source Google, right? Um, I mean it says two thousand one hundred and ninety three, which would that put that somewhere like the mock. Yeah, it says three point four, mock three point four,
0: which I don't know if I had, And at least I feel like the the that we're allowed to know about, at least I don't know what you're allowed to know about, but at least what the rest of us are allowed to know about the SR seventy one is still the fastest plane ever to be flown.
1: Yeah, I mean, from what I know and what I'm allowed to I mean, like I don't there's actually nothing that I I'm not privy to this information just because I'm not on a need to know basis. But I mean, yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate that three point four is is what we what we're allowed to know is actually so, what we So Mach Ten are supposed to know.
0: Mach ten. It would be significant. So, anyways, Maverick, being Maverick, he gets to ten. Of course, it's not enough. He pushes it a little farther, uh, and he experiences uh, a, a rapidly unscheduled disassembly of his aircraft. <laughs> that he somehow manages to walk away from.
1: Right. You know. I think. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what was. What was more. What was the 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 least believable part of that story? If if is him being able to. Uh, stay conscious during a turn, you know, doing uh Mach five plus, you know, um, or his ability to survive the, you know, disintegration of that aircraft, you know, and then, you know, obviously the humor is where he walks into the bar and like a you know a space here yes. like looking at him. He's like, you know, he's like, where am I? And they're like Earth.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so you know, but again, uh, kinda kinda tracking with the first film, right? Like Maverick's kind of hero, the hero in the opening, but he's also in trouble for his antics. But rather than getting punished, he gets shipped off to, to Miramar. He gets shipped off to Top Gun, right? And so yeah, that, that's does. kind of the case here. But now they're, they're bringing him back for a mission that, that only he can train these these pilots for. And what, what's right. funny is, um, you know, they give it a, a justification early on. like they, they, they lay out like what the mission is, what the task is for Maverick. And he starts to talk through it. Oh, you've got to be able to do this, that, and the other. So because of the, of the parameters of this mission, he rules out the F-35. Now, again, total layman sitting here on this side of the microphone. But that seemed dubious to me.
2: Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, so this, it is odd that he would rule out the F-35. Now, there's a host of reasons for that. Um, but what I find interesting, um, and this is where I go back before I'm like, well, it's believable enough, right? Like there's, there's a way to do this mission, right? Um, there are obviously multiple ways to do this mission, but it is not the way that I would have done that mission. Um, and so he's talking about, um, Ruling out the F-35, and I forget, I forget why, why did he rule out the F-35? I can't again? remember
0: the exact reason, uh, but, um, but I know this, like I, there's a, there's a pilot actually, so that I name dropped him with, with my Jacoco, right, so, um, and uh, I, I mentioned him to uh-huh. to you the other day and kind of turned you on to him, so, um. There's this guy, Dave Burke. His call signs Chip. He works uh, with Jocko with Echelon Front, and uh, he got connected through with Jocko because he was a forward air controller for for SEAL Team Three for Task Unit Bruiser while they were in right. the Battle of Ramadi. So this is this highly qualified. Uh, pilot on, on the ground, running a rifle, you know, calling in air support. Uh, and so, uh, Dave CV is that he, he was a, a Marine. So not even a Naval aid air. So, but he was a, a Marine. I don't know how many squadrons of Marines there are flying F 18s, but there's, there's some out on the carriers. And so, uh, Dave flew, I don't know if he flew the super Hornet or not. Um, he did. Yeah. So, but Dave is, you know, we talked about unicorn some on the air force side of things. Dave's a legit unicorn in military aviation in that uh, he flew the F 18. He's a Top Gun graduate. He was a Top Gun instructor. I believe he was a lead instructor at Top Gun, but he's also flown the F 16 um, odd for a Marine. He's also flown the F 22 odd for almost anybody, but extra odd for a Marine. Uh, and he flew the F-35 and actually stood up the Marines' first active squadron of F-35s. So if there, if there's anybody on this planet that's qualified to talk about, A, the capabilities of the F-18 in comparison to the F-35, it's Dave. But, uh, you know, the, the abilities and capabilities of our fifth-gen fighters, Dave's he's up there among people who are qualified to speak about it intelligently. And, man, he just raves about the F-35. He loves that plane. Uh, yep. but his, his take, he, you know, he's done a couple of podcasts now. He did one with Jocko where he kind of broke down his take, take on the movie and he did one with, uh, uh, there's a, it's, I think it's just the fighter pilot podcast, uh, that a guy does. They went and watched it. They did a live take with some, some top gun, uh, pilots and instructors afterwards. And Dave was one of them. And his take on that was just. Listen, uh, they wanted to shoot this movie a certain way. They wanted the actors in the jets. They wanted to show real G's and the F 35 is a single seat plane. Also, my guess is you'd have to pay way more than $12,000 an hour to operate F 35s. So they needed, <sighs> they needed a reason for it to be F 18s and they found one. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's
1: not wrong. Uh, and, uh, I would, I would agree with, with his assessment, you know, um, you know, and quite frankly, um, i i would venture to say too that there that there's also a bit of um you know i mean there's there's probably a little bit of national security that goes along with that too yeah. right like if you i mean the f-18 has been it's been operational for years now right like it's a fourth gen fighter um there's nothing stealthy about it right um the f-35 is it's 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 novel right so it's still new. Um, and, you know, like, except for the external appearance of what that airplane looks like, like, I don't think that, I don't think that the United States government would be okay with, with Paramount putting, you know, IMAX cameras inside yeah, that airplane, that, you know, showing off all the bells and whistles.
0: The system tied into the helmet on the F-35 alone is mind boggling when you start to look into it. And that's even oh, the yeah, things that yeah. we're allowed to know that it can do. It is un, just unreal.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I, um. I was I was privileged to sit in on a um, on an unclassified and then a, and then a subsequent classified briefing uh, for the F thirty five and it was phenomenal um, of, of capabilities um, of way ahead it was phenomenal yeah um, and so I, I agree with that wholeheartedly
0: I just so, uh, but it's 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 uh, it's super popular to knock both the F thirty five and the F twenty two these days. Of course they've had, they're super expensive. Of course they've had cost overruns. They're not only government projects, they're military projects. Of course there's cost overruns. But when I, when I listen to to guys that that have been behind the stick, when I, when you listen to guys like Dave Burke, they rave about the F 35 pilots love that plane and I'm yeah. like, I, you know, I I like your take way more than the keyboard warrior on you know f14tomcat dot com. You know, I'm like, no, you might not have this right.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah. I mean, what 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 uh, Mr. Burke is talking about here, Chip. Um, you know, his his logic um, about the 35 introducing an ecosystem, um, and for what for what that means right and i love his his analogy how he compares the the introduction of the f35 as like when steve jobs introduced the iphone right it's it's a phone it's a music player and it's an internet access point all in one device and like everybody's like you know googly-eyed over the iphone when it first came out yeah but when nobody you know foresaw then except for maybe steve jobs and and the folks who were on his team was of the potential of, of what. What ecosystem that creates, right? And then what creative, innovative ideas come from that, right? That you know all stem from this device, right? And so what what I think, you know, what Chip does a really good job of, of introducing it at an unclassified level of the F thirty five, right? It is a new way of conducting war on so many levels. Um, the 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 most least impressive thing about that platform is that it's an airplane, right? Like that's right. it. Yeah. Right. Um the what what the F-35 right will do and I don't wanna echo all the things that Chip already talked about, but um in terms of just command and control, right? What we call C two in the military, um the ability to uh publish and make information accessible, um, to different users who need it. Right. And when I say users, I could, I could be talking about soldiers on the ground. I could be talking about, you know, other fourth gen airplanes, right. That, that need information, right. And the F 35 is that sounding board. It is that collection point point. It is a sounding board, it is the, um, the translator of all that information to distribute to users. Right in particular, those in senior levels of command to make decisions right uh for executing missions, yeah, and so then that is really the you know kind of the impetus uh, of the f thirty five and why why it's so great, um but regardless back to the movie, they decide, hey, we're not going to use the f thirty five okay, great, right, we're going to use f eighteens and so um you know, so he starts outlying you know, like, hey, we're gonna to fly this low level ingress route, right. We're gonna we're gonna ingress um, to this uh, to this site right, and we're gonna drop in some bombs right to to do the job right and get out of there. Right? And they talk about uh, planning for this mission. You know, like the, they've got SAM sites right. So SAM is short for Surface-to-Air Missiles right. So they got SAM sites all along this route of flight that they've got to avoid right because if they come up to a certain altitude. The 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 SAM sites get activated, like I talked about before, the wild weasels, right? But they're not doing it intentionally, right? Yeah. This is this would be an unintentional activation of a SAM site. And so, uh, what I found amusing uh, during this mission, right, when they actually go to do the mission, right, and they they launch all these cruise missiles from the boat, right, from the ship, and they knock out this airfield. Yes. Uh, I, I'm like I'm like, hey man, like, why don't you send another volley of those missiles? And take out all those sam sites yes. you know and yes. like, because you take out the sam sites and and now you know the, all the risk that you've incurred by having to fly at this altitude, you've mitigated that risk right, and yeah. so that risk is now gone, and so now you don't have to worry about you know when you're doing this hygiene maneuver out of the threat zone, like when they it talked about going to the coffin's corner right and they go up in the coffin's corner. And they're like pulling, you know, excessive Gs while trying to target, you know, target the missile or target the bombs. And so, uh, yeah, so that was one aspect of the mission. I was like, dude, like, you're already shooting cruise missiles. Yes. Just send send another volley, take out yeah. the SAM sites, you know?
0: But yeah, I mean, you've mentioned there. there's probably any number of better and safer ways to get this done. Like even oh, if sure. you, yeah. and, and, you know, correct me if I have some of my, my tech and procedure wrong here, but I mean, even if you've got to put boots on the ground to go and assist with, with targeting on the ground, I, I gotta imagine there's any number of bombs you could have dropped or launched from, you know, wherever right on this thing and be done with it.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, to a degree.
0: Um, you know, but, but no, that wouldn't be fun. W- and the movie would be over that, too quick. Th- that there's, wouldn't be fun. There's no right? drama in that. Um,
1: so, if- but what I, what I, what I do find interesting, um, is, uh, the inaccuracies. I want to I point this out just cause I think it's important, right? The, the whole purpose, right. Of, of having two pilots in the airplane, right. You have the pilot in the front and you have the weapons officer in the back, right the way that they depicted it in the movie was as they were flying a two ship, right. Um, and the vernacular here is different, right. The, the Navy calls it welded wing. Um, the air force calls it fingertip, right. That position. Um, first of all, uh, I would not fly in welded wing through the, through the mountains like that. That's just, that is, that is a, an excessive amount of risk that you incur. Right. Um, there's another position that we could use for that. And it's called fighting wing right? right? or, you know, where you've got the lead aircraft and then you have like a a bubble, an airspace bubble behind that aircraft where you can maneuver within, which gives the other aircraft high, high flexibility.
0: Um, well, if there's anything we learned from the first movie, it's that you don't want to get caught in somebody's jet wash. (laughs) We uh, RIP goose.
1: Oh gosh. Which, yes, I know. Um, there's two O's and goose boys. There's two O's and goose. Two O's. <laughs> the the, and, the uh,
0: alternate plaque is in the ladies' room.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, this is right. Uh, and uh so, anyways, um, but yeah. So what I, what I want to point out, what I found interesting, I, I just was like, why are you doing this? Uh, so when they went over the mountain pass, right, and they're making their their final approach into the target, right, the way the movie depicts it is that you had one aircraft who was going to pull the trigger, right deploy the bombs the other aircraft was the one who was lacing the target right who was identifying the target and it's totally unnecessary because the whole purpose for the dude in the back seat is they're the weapons officer right so you've got the weapons officer who can target right and the guy in the front seat is the one who pulls the trigger right so you can increase your chances of success if you have both airplanes targeting at the same time and then you both deploy bombs yeah right um, versus, you know, they kept, you know, the one of the things is like, oh, I got dead eye, I got dead eye, right? The the, the, the like, oh, my 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 sensors are all out of whack, and I'm like, hey, I'm cool, man. Well, the airplane, the other airplane <laughs> is probably still working, yes, <laughs> you know. So, anyways, but you but know, I, that but, doesn't make for good movies. I and, will uh, say
0: to yeah. to their their credit though, like uh, one of those recaps that I watched that that had. Um, had Dave Burke on it. There, so there were three guys that, that were all Top Gun grads and I, I think maybe they all instructed. One might even be a current Top Gun instructor but two had, had flown that airframe. Like two had flown the f eighteen. so one was an old F-14 guy which was really cool to hear from him. Um, but like to, to the movie maker's credit like uh, D- Dave Burke specifically said like they didn't show, they, they showed things that would have cost people their wings, gotten them kicked out of, of the military. They showed all kinds of things that wouldn't have been allowed, but they didn't show anything that the airframe wasn't capable of. He's like, everything they showed the F-18 doing in that movie, I have oh, yeah. done in an F-18. So not necessarily in the proximity to other, to other jets, all that stuff, but just the physical, the ability of the airframe to do it. He's like everything they depicted, I have done in an F 18. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, once again, that's where, that's where I get the movie a lot of credit, you know, for, for, for the accuracy and the, um, the attention to detail in that regard. Um, but you know, uh, like I said, I mean, there's just so much about the movie aside from, you know, me kind of being a military aviator, nitpicking at the, at the play of the strategy. I'm like, I would have done differently, but, um, you know, it's believable enough. It's like, okay, well, yeah, you could do that. Yeah. You know? Um, and what I, uh, what I really appreciated was quite frankly, the, um, the accuracy and the reality of what, uh, evading, you know, a Sam missile threat actually looks like. Yeah. Um, like, the way that they did that in the movie is actually very close to reality, right? Um, you know, when you have a, a Sam side go active, right, and it deploys ammunition, right, and you're having to execute evasive maneuvers for, for survivability, um, I think it's almost impossible to, to, accurately, to, 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 um, to accurately depict this in a movie. But that whole sequence, when they finally come out of Coffin's Corner, right, they're getting shot at, right? That whole sequence is probably within the approximately of about anywhere between 60 to 90 seconds in real life. Yeah. Right. Like them maneuvering, right? All those missiles being fired. I mean, that would happen so quick. Yeah. Right. Uh in the movie, it, it happens over the course of about 10 minutes or so because they're trying to show all these different angles. Um, but what I what's important for people to understand is that like that sequence in real life is probably like 90 seconds tops. Yeah. Right. Which only further emphasizes like the proximity to to death that you are at that point. Right. Like when you're getting shot at by multiple SAM sites, you know, running out of um, uh, running out of munitions to defend yourself. Right. Uh, Send them flares, send them chaff, that kind of stuff. Um, It's true. I mean, you only have so many of those on your airframe. Right. And so when you're faced with, um, with overwhelming, um, uh, munitions, right. And you only have a certain amount of defenses. Like at some point you're going to run out,
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you've got to get out of there before you run well, out. And I mean, you know, tying it tying it out to your experience, uh, encounter with a, a Sam site and a C-17, uh, it's a rough day. It's a very <laughs> rough day. <laughs> That's, right? uh, the, those flares are your whole world real quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they
1: are, you know, and, um, yeah, I think uh, you know, I think the, the movie gets a lot of credit there. I mean, like you've really only got you know like a you've really only got you know maybe two or three presses of the button you know before all your stuff's gone. Gosh. You know, I mean because when they send, I mean you're talking about when you when you when you press the button to deploy um, in uh, those type of defensive munitions, right? Like they send out quite a bit, yeah. right, on purpose, right? Because I mean you want to send out as much distraction to that missile right to save your life right but that comes at the expense of the sheer volume of of munitions you deploy right so that means that you might only have you know two or three rounds of that right so like you know you you better make sure that you know you're out of that threat zone quick because you know you're only going to have you know two or three extra lives if you will you know
0: to, to get out of there so the part of the overarching threat of this whole thing, they're like, oh, we gotta fly in low because of of the SAM sites, but it's uh, you know, you you talked about the volley of tomahawks at the beginning. So they never they never name the enemy, they don't name the country. They're like, but they're like, you know, they have <clears throat> you know these kind of jets and these kind of jets. And then they've got fifth gen fighters. that's the overarching threat. So they're launching these tomahawk, tomahawks to try and take out the airfield where those fifth gen fighters are because if you come up against those fifth gen fighters and these fourth gen jets it's it's over right so that's that's the overarching like that's that's the sort of Damocles you know hanging over hanging over all of this. Uh, so what's funny is they never named the country. they do mention that they're like, oh, they even have some old Tomcats. F-14 Tomcats. There's only one other <laughs> right. country in the world that still has F-14 Tomcats, which is Iran. Right. Uh, but they don't say Iran, and Iran doesn't have fifth-gen fighters, so it's it's not Iran. Maybe it's somebody who's friendly with Iran, and that's where they get their, their Tomcat from. But what they use well, maybe
1: it's a maybe it's a future alliance. I don't know. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, So what they use as their fifth-gen fighter is uh, which I don't know if they they actually flew any. I can't imagine they got their hands on them. Uh, but it's the Su-57, right? It's the Sequoia.
1: Yeah, it is. Let me uh, me open up an image real quick. Let me start. We're not not lying here. SU57. It's this thing. It is. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right.
0: So, you know, like, I feel like saying 5th Gen paints with a broad brush. Because you say that, and you assume F35 and F22 levels of technology and maneuverability and, and capability and i i don't know that you can paint everybody's fifth gen fighters with that broad a brush so like how big a threat is an su-57 to an f-18
1: you know um this is this is where i um where i, I starkly disagree with the movie right um right i, I i'm a firm believer right we talked about this like not all fifth gens are the same yeah um, and so I, I agree with you on that point, um, you know. But they've gotta, you know, they gotta make it believable enough, right? And it is relevant enough, right? Like, I mean, a fifth gen versus a fifth gen, right, is a different kind of is a different kind of fight, yeah, than than a fifth gen versus a fourth gen. But the the thing is, and and I don't know if the movie, um, well, quite frankly, like I'm gonna I'm gonna defend the movie here. I don't think the movie had the time or space to To unpack that, yeah, right, to talk about really the details of that, right, but we do here, and so I'll spend a few minutes here the the difference what what makes right u s fifth gen aircraft fifth gen aircraft um, and superior to our adversaries is the supporting infrastructure that goes into it, and what I mean by that is uh, the quality of training, right? For the individuals operating the airframe, right? But the thing is, is that it's like, imagine having an iPhone 13, right? That's 5G capable, has all these things, um, but you're in an environment that you're operating on like like 3G network, right? That like that the infrastructure around you is only capable of offering 3G internet speed. Right, but you have this device that can do like five G LTE or whatever it is. Right, Um, that's kind of what our adversaries are in right now. Right, so they they have these airframes. Right, and and I'm not saying anything that that you can't find open source. Right, or that's that's classified. Right, but um, you have these airframes that are fifth gen in title only. Yeah, um, in the sense that the supporting infrastructure, right, is just not quite Mm -hmm. there in terms of leveraging the full capabilities oh. of that airframe. Um, and then, you know, apart from that, the, the TTPs, right. The tactics, techniques, and procedures that the, uh, that the human element executes, right. To, to employ that weapon is, is starkly different uh, on the blue side, if you will, in comparison to the red side. Yeah.
0: So well, it, it's a, uh, like the, the SU-57 is is unconvincing an, enough to me. I think like uh Sukhoi's, you know, like is it fair to say like they're a leader in thrust vectoring? I mean, they've been at it for much longer than us. Like the maneuverability yep. of Sukhoi's airframes is impressive. I mean, even the the SU-27s that Ukraine's begging for right now. That you know, that they're in a the, Their maneuverability is impressive. I mean, you see it in an air show, you watch the videos, you wouldn't think a plane could do the things that it does, Um, you know, and that's something that I feel like maybe we lagged or just to emphasize, not that we didn't have the technical capability or know how to do it, but they've been at it for, for much longer. So I, I, you know, that, that I buy um, on the maneuverability side. Um, But yeah, I I just think in some areas, they just, they're paper tigers. They, you know, they're just trying to build stuff that looks mean and doesn't live up. And I'm not at all sold. And again, I have no expertise in this area. This is just gut feeling you have some in, uh, some expertise it'd be interesting to hear your take i think China's stealth fighter whatever it's supposed to be the fat dragon or I th- is it the j20 i can't remember what their the nato designation for it is you yeah, never you know, see you up. never see them flying with an escort i think it's a giant fraud a it's gigantic it's gigantic there's no way thing, that thing has anything of comp like anything approaching what we would consider fifth gen fighter maneuverability uh it's it's like if you if you took an f22 and put it on a copier and made a copy and then took that copy and copied that and you did that 2000 3000 times the final copy you end up with i think that's what china stealth fighter is
1: yeah you know um I gotta be careful what I say here. Right. So I just want to make sure I didn't do this before. Right. I'll do it now. Like, so everything I say is, is, is my opinion only. It is not representation of United States government, United States air force, any of that stuff. Um, but you know, right. My experience, Bill Staley's opinion, um, the, the, information that you that you and I say you, I mean, we, right. As, as, as consumers of information, the information that we consume right? We have to be conscious and aware that we are consuming the information that our adversaries are willing to put out. Right. Right. So it's important that everything we see about the airplane, everything that we uh, are able to observe is, is what they're willing to show us. Right. And so, um, and we have to take that for what it's worth. Yeah, Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, this thing looks like a hunk of trash yeah. right in my opinion um and you got to understand too right uh the courts have decided this that there is a whole host of uh um uh, what is it the is it corporate espionage is uh-huh. that what they're calling it right where they were stealing stuff yeah. you know um right they'll they'll never admit to it they don't acknowledge it whatever that's fine um you know that's that's their prerogative all right but it doesn't change the simple facts on the ground that it happened yeah. right um, the the thing is though, what I find, um, and this is might be a good segue into another topic that that we may we may breach, but um, the the CCP right has not, as of right now, uh, and this is open source information. They they have not been able to master the technology of producing aircraft engines. I don't know if you know this or not. Uh-uh. So, um, they can't do it. They, they they just can't do it, right? They don't have the technology, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the infrastructure to produce aircraft engines, Yeah. right? Uh, what's ironic about that is the um, the economic sanctions that are being leveraged on Russia right now are significantly impacting Russia's abilities to supply those engines to China. So, uh, so what's funny is is the the side effect of what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is impacting the readiness of the CCP army yeah. and the CCP military um, because of their, their deficiencies with producing um, the technology that they supposedly claim that they have. Right now, a lot of that, that's not classified. That's open source. You can find that if you dig hard enough. Um, but you know, to your point, right, this thing, right. J 20, fifth gen, i don't know man i mean like you know on the surface like i put that in a fight against another like a a u.s government or u.s military fifth gen i don't
0: give the j20 high chances yeah i just i just don't it's just so suspect to me that you you never see them flying without an escort it's not a bomber (laughs) i mean what's what's going on
1: right you know you have to understand too and so this is something that um that I think is important too is, 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 is service. What I'm going to call service doctrine, right? So, um, the, the, the doctrine that the services use to employ, um, weapon systems. Right. And so I need to go back and kind of talk about what doctrine is, right? So doctrine is not something that we just pull out of a hat, you know, we're like, Hey, this is how we're going to do business. Right. So doctrine are lessons learned from every experience, right? Doctrine is like there's a living, breathing document that we continually update in the military, right? Of of how we employ warfare, right? How we employ, um, right? Have you heard of the acronym DIME, right? Uh-huh. Like the the functions of government, right? So DIME, so um, D is for diplomacy, I is for information, M is for military, E is for economic, right? So when we look at the the four levers of national power through the through the lens of DIME, right, the military is only one of the four. Right, like economic sanctions is another one, informational warfare is another one, <clears throat> and then diplomacy, right? And so <clears throat> so when we're talking about leveraging uh, the the instruments of national power through the dime, right? The M portion of that, the military, right? We we have we have our doctrine, and our doctrine is such that, you know, like hey, these are the lessons we learned from 20 years in Afghanistan previous to that, these are the lessons we learned in the Gulf War in Bosnia. Previous to that these are the lessons we learned in Vietnam and so on and so forth, right? And it's continually being updated. Well, the way that we function, right, as a joint force, right, is so advanced in comparison to other, uh, to other, you know, great powers, if you even want to call them that, right? Um, the, the problem that I foresee with the CCP and what we're seeing in real time with Russia uh, in Ukraine. Is this inability, right, to leverage the capabilities of the different services, right, to execute, right, the mission, yeah. right? So, um, so when we talk about, um, we talk about executing warfare jointly. What I'm talking about is is leveraging seven seven functions, right? There are seven functions, joint functions that we execute. We execute fires, movement, maneuver. Communications, intelligence, command and control, uh, sustainment and protection. Right. So those are the seven functions that we have to do jointly, right? When I say jointly, I mean you know, United States Navy, United States Army, United States Air Force, right? Um, when we go to a fight and we do it jointly, right? Uh, we're not talking about, you know, what can the Air Force do, right? Like we're not talking about what what can the Navy do. We're talking about, okay, uh, you know how does the Air Force provide fires to the fight, right? How does the how does the how does the Air Force provide sustainment and protection to the fight, right? We don't we don't care about what what you know, and this, and this avoids like some of the tribal like I'm better than you, you're better than me. Like it's like no, no, like what's your function junction, right? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's like hey, like what's your purpose here? We have seven things we got to do, and what we're seeing here and this is a stark divergence from the film but this is okay um we're seeing here is that um when you look at a regime like the ccp that is authoritative in nature right controlling in nature what you see is a very hierarchical top-down approach to military operations and you remove um you have a very centralized command structure Right. When you have a centralized command structure, you remove the ability of, of, of middle and lower levels of leadership to make those decisions in real time as it's happening, right. To, to execute the plan. Right. Um, and so what you're seeing here is that in comparison to what, right. I'm trying to draw this back to the movie as close as I can. Right. What you see here in the movie is you see a lot of this decentralized command authority right where you see the pilots in real time being able to make decisions right that is what gives the advantage to to blue over red in a fight right is is the way that we conduct warfare jointly right and in, and in that manner um, versus other regimes that you'll see where uh, and it, that's partly why you know like obviously the the bad guys lose in the movie, which is fine. Um, but you know, which is why you're seeing things now, like where you're getting freaking, you know, um, what, what is it now? 12, 12 generals in Ukraine have died. Is is that right?
0: Just uh, another one or even two this week, you know, we're a hundred days into this conflict.
1: Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons why you're seeing just an abysmal, display of what you, what we would have expected, otherwise is the inability to allow the air domain, right. To do air domain things. Um, and you have the land domain, uh, that is trying to control the air domain and it's just not working no. Right. And so,
0: um, It's just, I mean, we we talked about this some off air, and and I actually felt like the SU-57 was a great way to segue into this, because I did want to cover the movie some, and I think we did it justice, and there's still some unspoiled things there that I think we can leave that are are fun and very very movie-y. Uh, but, uh, uh, 100% worth your time, go watch it. But it is, it's just shocking to me that uh, among all things, one, I I just think that we were at at a place in time where if you had just, um, you know, asked the average man on the street, um, well, again, uh, (laughs) the answers would have varied, but like, if you asked people who, who weren't in the military, didn't have your, your type of expertise, uh, in, um, you know, uh, like air aerial combat and in, in that space, um, you know, w- we would have said, I would have said, you know, Russia's pro- probably has has parity with us militarily, in in any number of different ways, um, it, but they've they've been the be- the most direct comparison with us militarily for for some time. And we get into Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, and a hundred days later, you're just like, oh, oh no, not not even close. I'm not even, not even close. And to me, nothing about that is more telling than the fact that they still don't control Ukrainian airspace. That's insane to me. That boggles my mind. It, it should, on paper, it should have been no factor. It should have been day day one. They should have owned the airspace. But on day one hundred, they do not. And uh, you know, I, I said this to you off air. I'm like, it, it, you know, seeing what we've seen now. Knowing what we know now, like if, if Russia didn't have nukes, we just, nobody would have to, to pay them any mind at all in any capacity. I mean, they militarily, they're just a non-factor if they didn't have nukes. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. Um, You know, which begs
1: a question, you know, um, and this is something that we grappled with in school uh, the past year. And then as an instructor, I kind of grappled with it with my colleagues and other PhDs that are here, you know, is you know, at some point, and this is you know, I don't say this to be um to be a w down or anything, but at some point, um, you're gonna have a, a nation. And we'll we'll say Russia here, um, where quite frankly, to your point, right, the only bargaining chip they have is they've got nukes, right? So they got a seat at the table and you know, they can sit there and dictate uh terms and conditions because of that one simple fact, right? When evidence of what's happening in Ukraine would say otherwise of their capabilities and so at some point um and i don't i'm not at all trying to prophesy this but like at some point um you know somebody's going to use nukes yeah right um at some point i i firmly believe that it'll happen i don't want it to i'm not wishing for it i'm not hoping for it right but at some point a, a nation's going to go you know what uh we're gonna make this a a norm like we're gonna normalize using nukes in war um and it could start in any capacity um i don't know when or how um i pray that it never does but when you get a country like russia right who just it just demonstrates ineptitude at every corner right and they're gonna go you know what
0: you know Let's do let's do this. Partic- you know what I mean? Particularly particularly with an ego the size of Putin's. Uh, I, I mean I well, have yeah. said very early on in this thing that that I, my my feel, my take is there's there's really only two ways for the world. Like the what's going on in Ukraine is, is a is a global threat. It's not World War Three, but it is a global threat. It it you know and um it's the only two outcomes I see is that it becomes a nuclear conflict or somebody's got to find something they can give Putin where he can walk away and say I won we won his ego requires that but if if his only out is loss I believe he will use nuclear weapons
1: yeah you know i um you know like i said i mean that's just my opinion right um but for those reasons right i, I don't think that you're inaccurate in your in your in your thinking um you know, and, and look in gosh, I mean look and see what's happening. I mean, look at look at Norway and and Finland, right? Um, look at wait, it nor is it Finland and Sweden or is it no, it's not it's not Sweden, it's Norway and Finland. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah They're so.
2: NATO.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you when you have somebody right who is unstable, right, or I'm gonna use the word unpredictable, right? Um, I don't think. Right, I think this is a miscalculation on a grave measure yeah. on behalf of, of 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 Putin. Um, you know, losing Finland and Norway to NATO, right, is a huge blow to him that he, uh, I don't think, expected. You know, or anticipated. Um, and when you have an individual who is who is disconnected from reality, um. And who sees the world through their own reality um you know that that's dangerous right history has shown that those individuals are dangerous very dangerous um and they can do a lot of destructive damage um locally and internationally so um you know it, it is fascinating to watch this unfold in ukraine real time uh especially as a military guy um because you know what we're seeing here you know, and this is—I was thinking about this today. Kind of leaning into this, I was like, "Man, I was like, it's—it's it's almost like if people like didn't believe like the atrocities of like trench warfare and like just like the utter shelling of cities in World War II, where like they just like leveled cities mm-hmm. to the ground, and like you know, especially like younger generations now that you know are almost uh, are almost a full century displaced from that, right?" They're like, oh man, that's the stuff we read in history books. Dude, look in Ukraine. Yeah. Look at Ukraine. Dude, like there there are cities that are uninhabitable. Oh, that right? that, that one
0: they, uh that one port city. What is it? Uh, Mari Mariupol? It, Something yeah, like that. Mariupol. I mean, just uninhabitable. I mean, it's just leveled. Yeah. You know, and it's like
1: it and you when we talk about the um the strength of or the perceived strength uh, of an adversary you know, like when, when you have to resort, right. To just an utter campaign of submission. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like and the world just watches as you're just like pounding a nation into submission. Um, it's like, well, okay. I, I mean, I guess I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that scared of you. Yeah. Right. Like so long, so long as I can do certain things to prevent you from doing that, you know, I mean like, dude the the capital loss of whatever naval vessel they had right The the fact that they lost that destroyer or uh it wasn't a carrier i know that but like yeah. it was it was a larger vessel i want to yeah. say it was a destroyer um i mean dude you just got ukrainian naval officers playing four-dimensional chess with these guys and just yeah. absolutely just well uh, the, that was you know fascinating. like
0: it, it speaks so much and ukraine's not without its issues i mean uh, you know, every everybody's yeah. on board pro, pro Ukraine right now. You don't have to to look too far. You know, you don't have to go too far back in the in the way back machine to find plenty of articles about corruption and issues in in Ukraine, um, and all, sure. all kinds of interesting stories about we'll just say uh, various big names in U.S. politics with some real troubling ties to to this this region and this government. Oh, yeah, um, sure. We'll we'll leave that at that. But um, but like war. Uh, War is hell. War is awful, but it it also unites. It it brings out the worst and the best in humanity. And to see the fight and the tenacity in the Ukrainian people is unbelievable. And that Mariupol is leveled is a testament to their fortitude. In that, okay, Russia took Mariupol, but but did they? <laughs> like they they had to destroy it to take it. Like it was, I you know. It, it's it's a it's a pirate victory you, you know you look at it from yeah. the outside and it's and it's awful it's awful but like you you had to you had to leave nothing for the ukrainians to even have a toehold before they they would actually leave yeah. um yeah it, well, it's cr- in- and it hates that it, I, it sucks that there's that nuclear math there because a- any number of the rest of us in the world would have smacked this down already if 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 we weren't having to do factor in russia's nukes have to be a non-issue
1: yeah you know I mean you've got that um and I, I think that they tried and this is this is interesting um you know they tried to introduce something that I think that they thought was gonna uh, was gonna scare the West right um, when they use hypersonics um and so for for those who don't know hypersonic missiles or hypersonic weapons are, are novel weapons right so they haven't been used in warfare up until uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, with Russia,
0: that is. And, do we have um, verification that they were used, though? Like, do we have outside um, verification that that's actually what was used?
1: So, on an, I can say that it has not been um, adequately refuted. That's why I, I will leave it at that. Um, the <clears throat> the problem, the thing with hypersonics, right? It's a novel weapon. Uh, I'll take thirty seconds to explain what a hypersonic is essentially it, it's a it's a missile that can be uh, employed at a speed of which is greater than any defense system that exists can can take it down right So um, you're talking about a missile that can that can travel at speeds of Mach three, four right
0: and still um, with a high degree of maneuverability right isn't that kind of a confounding well, factor there
1: that is that is a that is a talking point yeah. what it, it in reality you know no one's actually seen it executed in combat before um you know there are sources that essentially the the two that they shot um in ukraine they missed uh, so you know whatever yeah uh, and uh, the, the the thing the, the thing i think that they tried to say that was scary that they tried to scare the West with using these hypersonics is, oh, well, we'll just put a nuclear tip on it. You know, instead of, instead of having a conventional warhead on the tip of this hypersonic, we're going to put a, we'll put a nuclear on the tip of it. Um, you know, they tried to do that. The thing is though, is that like hypersonics, I, I don't think are, are that scary, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, one, they're very expensive. Um, and you know, as an, as an operational planner, right. So like me, I'm at the, when I'm looking at this from an operational level of war perspective, I'm thinking numbers, right. And I look at numbers and I'm like, okay, how many artillery shells have they used? How many missiles have they used? How much, how much petrol have they used for, you know, like what, what are their, their, their supply stocks, right. Their supply stocks are just dwindling as every day that this war goes on, they're just using using more and more mun- right. munitions. So, for me, when I look at the operational level of war, I'm like, okay, if I want to if I want to punch my enemy in the face, when's the best time to punch him? Probably when his will to resist my my left hook is at its most right. Like when he when he or she you know has the inability to to have the resources to fight back. Whenever I throw that punch, is probably the best time. And so for me, as an operational level planner of war, I'm looking at this going, dude, like you're spending so much you know beans bullets you know supplies uh food rations medical rations all those things like you are just you are using those things in excess right now and you know it's like and their their ability right to 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 move on a different front right now is almost uh a, a non a non starter right so like they've got all their resources in ukraine right now yeah so like so if you wanted to go you know elsewhere and strike it mother russia like there's a there's a reasonable chance that your that the defense that they would throw would be marginal at best
2: yeah
1: you know because all their resources are down there so for me like as an operational level of, of war i'm just watching this from the sidelines going all right dude you can keep i would love for you to continue to expend every ounce of ammunition that you have because that just means that you have less to use for something else yeah you know um and when I'm looking at the taxes the at the strategy and the operational level work that they're using to do this thing' it's just like I'm like you're a joke, you know, like you're just a joke like the to the original point, right The only reason why you have a voice in this thing right now is because you have a nuke yep. you know yeah um, and which brings up an interesting question of you know um like the u s responses to this right is you know. I don't even know how, I don't even know how I want to say this. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I will say it, but it's interesting because when we look at, you know, an Island off, you know, out in the Pacific, that is a, a very talking point right now. Um, you know, how, how do we respond to a similar scenario um, to a similar adversary with similar capabilities, you know, um,
0: it's, I, dude, you know, dude, I literally, you know. <laughs> literally I was just thinking, I'm like, I, I I really, I, I 100% like the, the next question in my head, the take that I want is what in the world is stopping China from moving on Taiwan right now? Like I, I, I thought for sure, like once Russia went into Ukraine, like I, I thought like, Hey, start, start the timer. Cause the, uh, the, to me, Per, perfect time. It, it, everybody's attention is divided. Nobody knows exactly what anybody is going to do in in response with it right now. Like it's one thing to talk. Oh, we're going to defend democracy. It's another thing to put planes in the air and put boots on the ground. And all that being said, as badly as I want that take, we are we are across the three hour threshold, my friend. Yeah, we should <laughs> and, uh, probably wrap uh, this up reasonably po- soon. Podcast, <laughs> podcast time runs different, particularly. With nice. a with a good guest and just flies right by and uh, Lord knows I I could talk this stuff for for another two or three hours easily but uh, I, yeah well let's uh let's try and wrap it up here and see. No, no, well, half an hour or say well well I'll say this there there are a couple more things I want to cover but I, I I'd like to close out and uh, and because there's a couple things we didn't hit on but I want to save them for Patreon if you've got a couple of extra minutes to to do a little okay. a little content for Patreon uh. Okay. We never heard your call sign, so I'd like to save that for Patreon. And as I understand it, they almost <laughs> always come with a good story. So we, we'll we we'll save your call sign for Patreon. Uh, okay. And then there's just no way, as long as you've been flying, particularly as, as a story, that you don't have a couple of uh, funny and or hair-raising stories from being in the air. So maybe... Maybe a little bit of that oh, action on the Patreon. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. Um, all right. But, but you gotta you, do that. You, you gotta pay to play for that stuff. That'll that'll be over on the on the supporter side. Go go join Patreon and, and you can hear that stuff over there.
1: Yeah. Um, before we do that, let's uh, let's put a bow on what we were talking about. Right. We'll put a bow on it. and Move on. Um, you have to understand um, the adversary's logic right now, uh, and we'll we talk about the CCP. Um, and we talk about Russia, right? And two two very different adversaries. Um, but the CCP, in particular, um, they um, it's inherent, right? You're you're talking about a communist regime, right? Uh, which translated is an authoritarian regime. And so, an authoritarian regime in nature, right, wants control. Go figure. Um, and so, the control aspect. Right is an essential part of their of their source of strength, right? And so, when I say control, I mean controlling the narrative, right? Controlling the perception, controlling um, actions within internally and externally, right? And we see all of that happening, right? And so, it, we should be aware of that and be and see it for what it is. Um, you you talked about Taiwan um a part of that control piece right that i think it is important to understand is that that would be very escalatory in nature now could they do it Will do they want to do it yeah sure probably right i i i don't i don't i i feel comfortable saying that because of just all the open source stuff that's out there right in um, in particular, with current POTUS policy that he just dropped the other day about you know we're going to defend it right so uh, whatever I'll let the POTUS speak for me um, but that would be very escalatory in nature right so w- when you're talking about a country that is a control freak talking about something that is very escalatory right those are two very different things right they they it, an escalatory measure is is hard to control right and so. Um, you know when you have a regime that wants to control everything right Um, and they want to do it in on their terms on their timeline uh, in accordance with the way that they want to do it Um, when you start escalating right you start uh, you start introducing the opportunity for things to not happen according to the plan and so you know i think part of the reason why you're seeing uh what we're seeing now which is nothing um you know it, it's because they can't they're not confident in their ability to fully control everything that's going to happen yeah and so um and, and that is something quite frankly uh if you're talking to a guy like me as a as an operational planner and, a, and and working in strategy I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, what are the things that I can do to make them feel out of control?
2: Yeah.
1: You know, what what are the things that I can do to make them feel like they don't have control? You know? And so uh, you know, it's like talking to like the micromanager boss, right? And like, and like how do I like how do I like insert ways to like make them feel like they don't own this situation? Yeah. You know? Um and, and those little things, right, are are things that you can or, or how, or, or if somebody wants to be de escalatory in nature, right? And they want to, they want to, they want to control the volume of the conversation. What what can I do or say that will just, that they can't resist that the, the, the volume of the conversation is going to increase, yeah. you know, like, how do I poke the bear? Right? Like, right. like for me, for me, I'm like, how do I poke the bear? I want to poke the bear so bad because I want to pu- I want to make that bear feel uncomfortable. And I want to make that bear feel like they're not really in control of the I mean, situation. You're, you're not,
0: you know, you're not, you're not making a Winnie the Pooh joke here, are you? I <laughs> uh, not intentionally. <laughs> you, you know this uh, about Z? You what you say? You know this about the president? What, what, does he go by president? Whatever, whoever the dude in charge of, they're supposed to be Z G. Oh, she. Yeah, everybody says he looks like Winnie the Pooh, and he hates it. Like you can't make reference to it in China which makes uh, it all that much more fun because he does freaking look uh, like Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. That's the first time I've heard that. And I If I, if I was making reference, to that, I wasn't. See, see now,
0: better. but it makes it much more fun. Now, when you talk about poking the bear, you can just have yeah. that in the back of your head. That It, it is. Talking about and poking so, the bear is literally poking the bear.
1: Yeah. And here's the last thing I'll say um, that I think it's important for, for listeners to understand is, is, uh, information is what it is right it, 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 the information that we uh, consume is information that is being put put out there um, what's incumbent what's incumbent upon us is to be critical thinkers and to, and to think from the position of okay is the information that is being put out is it is it from a position of strength or is it from a position of weakness and so what I mean by that is, um, you know, the, the news that we see, let's just say internally, domestically, right, from, from the administration, right, the the news that comes out across all spectrums of media, right, from, you know, CNN, MSNBC, to, you know, Good Morning America, to Fox News, to Daily Wire, to whatever, right, <clears throat> all that information that comes out, right, right? Um, are are these individuals speaking from a position of strength or are they speaking from a position of weakness? And what I mean by that is, is the information that's coming out, are they trying to protect, like, are they doing damage control? Right. Or are they trying to whistleblow? Yeah. Right. And so what we see out of the CCP, uh, is this iron grip on information, right. Um, but what's interesting and we should all think about currently and, you know, to the future for the next, I would say, probably 10 to 20 years, particularly as we approach 2049, which is the millennia uh, or the uh, whatever they call it. It's uh, essentially the the 100 years for the it's a uh, passion. It's too late at night. I can't think of it right now. Uh, but essentially, it's their 100 year um, celebration of the Communist Party in China. Um So 2049 is a big year, right? That's a a milestone year for the CCP for a lot of the programs and initiatives that they're doing, right? Um, But what just, what happens, right? And this is a question I want people to think about is what happens when promises that were made, you know, to be in a certain position by 2049, what happens if those promises aren't fulfilled, right? The administration then has to kind of pedal back backpedal that is and and you know basically put out like okay hey like you know we didn't make it but we're going to get to here you know or um how i say it better um it, it gives them the perception that they're not really in control
2: right
1: right and so which then is is interesting on an international stage because if they're not really in control right like and the general population, right, the the people uh, of that nation, right, they start to catch wind of you know that the that they're not delivering, you know, then that puts them in a precarious position, Right. Um, you know, where things can get weird for on, on a lot of levels, um, you know, it's like you know, look at look at administrations currently in the past, right, like any administration that's come through the United States government, right, like any time that they don't meet, you know, like campaign promises. Right, people get upset. Yep, you know, and this is on both sides, right? I'm not talking red blue here. I'm talking, you know, generally speaking, you know, which is why you see administrations act in the way they do sometimes is to is to to fulfill those campaign promises because if they do fulfill them, right? Because then they can then they can speak from a position of strength and say, "Oh, hey, we did this," right? But if they if they fall short of those promises, well, now they look weak. Yeah, you know. And so, um, what's, what I would impress upon anyone who's listening, right. Is, is you have to be a critical thinker with the information that you're seeing, right. You just, you just have to be right. Um, everything is filtered, right. For good, bad, and then different reasons. Right. And you have to be able to, to contrast what you're reading with what you're seeing versus what you're, you know, uh, essentially it has to be this synthesis of, Okay. Does it sound like a duck? Does it smell like a duck? It's a quack like a duck. If it is, it's probably a duck. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, even though the article or this, this news agency says a little bit different otherwise, like you gotta be able to think critically about things.
0: So anyway, it's a good word, man. Yeah, you know, it's a, uh, you know, we, we hit on it on here all the time. Uh, you know, our rights come with responsibilities.
2: There's 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 work, there's work on
0: the backside of of all those rides, but well, dude, this has been a blast. Thanks you so much for coming on and doing this. I know you're in the middle of a, a crazy move right now, and, and big things coming. So I'm glad we could work it out. And fun to hear your your insight. And man, I just appreciate the invitation. It was funny, uh, you know your
1: your podcast was a lifesaver uh, on on my last road trip. You know, we were I, I drove up to Illinois where I'm moving to, and I was pulling some stuff up there. And uh, the podcast got me through some of the long hours in the car, and so it was funny. And I heard your voice, it. I was like, "Oh man, I, was like, I remember we talked about this a while ago." And the movie was coming out, and just perfect, perfect timing, man. So the the invitation is 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 an honor, and uh, and I appreciate appreciate you having me on here. Uh,
0: no, uh, awesome to have you, man, and uh, listeners, appreciate you sticking with us on a long one. Well worth uh, every minute, and uh, appreciate you guys still being here and uh you know as always uh, a little bit of support goes a long way so uh hit up the, the website solid7podcast.com solid the number 7podcast.com there's always links to the most recent episodes on all kinds of platforms apple music spotify wherever you like to listen to things uh it'll be on there and uh link to links to uh, some of the causes we like to support and our social media uh and even to uh, to patreon if you want to hear just the 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 awesome cool stories that uh, major Staley is about to share with us here. Yeah. You can click on Patreon and you can become a, a Patreon patron supporter and enjoy that along with us, but that's all right there on the website. Uh, and uh, even if you don't want to do that, just uh, wherever you're at right now, listen to the podcast, whatever app that is. Uh, if you can give us a review, give us a like, give us five stars, whatever, <laughs> every little bit helps, uh, helps get the word out and grow the podcast. And uh, on that note, uh, we will, uh, trying to think of a good top Gun top gun quote quote to close with but all of them are, are more action related feeling the need for speed isn't really the way to close out a, a podcast so uh <laughs> uh
1: yeah man I'm um, it's it's late um I'm, I'm, why am i why am i blanking on this i feel like well, there's a couple good ones
0: well i i'm always happy no, yeah. with the uh, the standard office michael reference of uh, we'll catch you on the flippity flip
1: we will yeah <laughs> that sounds good it's good enough for me we're out